right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Sally here, got a uh, hodgepodge episode for you, if you will. A lot of some parts coming, some parts going. It's complicated. I'm going to run you through the whole thing. We're going to start. Uh, Big Randy was out at Muirfield this past week, the AIG Women's Open. TC and I chatted with him, and then TC and I talked briefly about the Wyndham. Uh, and then we're going to bring in a couple of lawyers to talk about what's going on with the live lawsuit that was filed first up. We're going to talk to Lauren Donahue, who's going to t- uh, teach us a little bit about antitrust. Um, and then we have Will Bardwell on, another uh, a lawyer who follows golf and writes golf. We go into a little more detail about the case and how it relates to the world of golf. But uh, I thought it'd be, it was a good exercise for us to go through to learn a little bit more about antitrust and as well to talk to a real lawyer um, as to what, what to, you know, what to glean from the, from the lawsuit and all that. And then we come on the back end, TC comes back and we kind of debrief on the, the interview with Will and uh, a few other housekeeping items. So that's the run of show. It's a long one. Want to give, of course, give a shout out to our friends at Callaway. We just got back from filming season eight of Taurus Sauce in Scandinavia. We put the new Jaws Raw wedges in play. I have not changed how I've done chipping in a very long time, but the new 56 degree I have, I'm actually using that around the greens. I don't, I I got the S grind on that and I don't know why it was working so well uh, in Sweden uh, on that particular grass, but I'm hitting little runner chips with it. And I'm really excited about the Jaws raw wedges. I'm sad to replace the MD5s, but it was time to do it. They are the most aggressive groove in golf. Uh, I've got them in the raw face. They're already starting to rust, give that nice, beautiful, rusty look. You can customize the heck out of these things. You can, the wedge features tungsten plugs in the weight port and progressive centers of gravity throughout the loft, so lob wedge doesn't launch too high on a full shot or a pitching wedge that won't lo- won't launch too low. There's four grind options, 17 lofts, two finishes. There's something for everyone. Uh, so thanks to our friends at Callaway for getting those in our hands in time for Taurus Sauce. Um, we're going to put them in play in competition here very shortly. So you can go to callawaygolf.com slash jaws raw. That's callawaygolf.com slash jaws raw to learn more about that. Let's bring in Randy and TC. All right, TC is here in the Kill House. I'm calling in from an undisclosed location and Big Randy back to his hotel in Edinburgh coming fresh off. Tell us about your weekend, man. What have you been up to? Gentlemen, hello. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Uh, I bid you, well, Sally, I bid you adieu in, I guess both of you, I bid you adieu in Oslo. Um, Hopton Bird. Oh, Randy, you didn't say goodbye? I know that's true. You did not That's bid me. That's true. They made me guard the luggage. Um, <laughs> they, they put their best man on luggage duty. I'm sorry about that, TC. Anyway, hop, flew down to Edinburgh, got out to Muirfield Friday late in the afternoon, saw a little bit of golf, and then spent all day Saturday, all day Sunday out here. It was spectacular. It's always, always a treat to be back in Scotland. Lots of sea breeze and my first time being out at Muirfield. So a real treat to get to see that course, walked it quite a few times, got a very, very good feel for it. Uh, and we had a great championship, a, a very dramatic ending today, which which we'll get into. But Solly, thank you for patching me in from the bridge in in Ratho, uh, just outside the Edinburgh airport this evening. What's uh, what sticks out to you about Muirfield? It's walking in person. Uh, I've never been there. I've never gotten to see it. We've watched it on TV once every ten years or so. But 
Uh, people rave about it. There's there's definitely something special about it. Did it stick out to you and watching the women play it this week? Yeah, you know, the, the common theme I heard from players and caddies was it's exceptionally fair if you hit good shots. If you're in control of your golf ball, it's it's a very fair course in the sense that, you know, every hole that they have wide runways all the way up to the green. You know, you're not really subject to the the extreme quirkiness that you can be even at a place like the old course. Um, it, it's just a place where if, if you hit a good shot and in your, if you're in control of your golf ball, you're going to do fine. And on the flip side of that, if, if you start getting a little squirrely, if your confidence starts to waver, you know, the, the wind plays a big part. There are a lot of crosswind holes, which I think makes it a little different so, from some championship courses. Um, man, the, the bunker placement is just divine. There, there seemingly are bunkers right where you don't want them to be. And as our good friend Andy Johnson said uh, a week or two ago, they just slurp up golf balls. It, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, going around Muirfield, I, you know, really, I gotten to know it when Mickelson won back there in, in 2013, was excited to, to actually walk the course. You know, you guys know much more about architecture than I do. But to my eye, not really any gimme holes. I mean, the, the most gimme hole that you could say this week for the women was the par five fifth, mainly just because it was downwind. I mean, it, it was kind of playing almost as a difficult par four. But besides that, there, there's no bad hole out there. There's really no let up. Um, but you're consistently going to be rewarded or I should say not punished if, if you're in control of your golf ball. Um, so I, I just think it's a really good championship test. I, I thought it, you know, I, I, I'm curious how it looked on TV, but I thought it was a great venue for the ladies. I loved it. I thought it was as advertised even better i enjoyed watching the ladies on it because there's a bunch of bunkers that I, I think the men probably blow it past and the ladies are are having to to uh, deal with that you saw that right fairway bunker on 18 mm -hmm. there uh you know that the last playoff hole uh i really enjoyed watching nine and ten i thought those holes were exceptional standouts uh all weekend I didn't catch too too much on thursday friday but yeah i was i was blown away by the golf course i was a little bit disappointed in the crowds and the kind of energy around the place, uh, you know, some have chalked that up to a lot of golf being played in and around East Lothian, Fife area the last, you know, six weeks or so. But kind of wanted to ask you about that, Randy. What was your 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 read from it? Yeah, it, it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, my God, where is everybody? But <laughs> I, I can definitely see, you know, it. I'm, I'm sure, you know, especially coming off the men's open at, at uh, St. Andrews. It was a tough weekend. So you have like, I, which I learned about all this when I got here, uh, the Fringe Festival going on in Edinburgh, which is like one of the biggest arts festivals of the year. Uh, you have, I think the Highlands Games are going on somewhere in, in and around North Berwick. So it wasn't like, you know, clear the calendar, the women are coming to town. But yeah, and, and I guess I'll just add to that too. That, that place, how should I say it? The people kind of just diffuse out there. It's not a natural spot where, you know, you have all these congregating points and you can see all over the golf course. I'd heard that even earlier this year was it's a 
Fabulous tournament course, but it's a hard place to watch a golf tournament as a spectator. Now, I didn't find it like all that hard. And, and I guess some of that is because I wasn't really fighting like huge crowds, but just some awkwardness with how they have to rope the patrons and, and all of that. So, yeah, you know, I, I always wish people would come out and, and it'd be raucous and, and whatnot. But on the ground, it didn't really stick out as like, you know, oh, my God, something's wrong. But um, always room for improvement, I guess. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was just expecting best fans in golf. You right, know? And, right, uh, right. I wanted to see them flashing a little bit. Also, Saturday afternoon, I was a little bit a little bit taken aback by some of the um, the proclamations on the weather forecast. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, it sounded like people were going to get blown off the planet based on what they were saying. And, and either the wind was a little bit late to arrive or not quite as severe as, as they would have thought. It still got pretty pretty uh, frothy, it looked like, though. I'll, I'll say this. It, it was both not as – I don't know what they were saying on TV. It was a very sustained win Saturday, and, and it really picked up, honestly, around 3 o'clock, kind of right around when those final three, four, five uh, groups were headed out on the course. So – um, people that went out in the morning and, and completed play, you know, around lunchtime, I think it was a little easier and then the wind did pick up, but it was not gusty. I did not find it gusty at all on Saturday. It, it was very consistent, very sustained. It was like a West Northwest wind, which I guess it, it, the wind was the same direction all week. And then today was more of the same. I thought at times it felt maybe a little stronger, but it was pretty consistent all in all with with what they had Saturday. Now, with that being said, I walked in the final group on Saturday, on Saturday afternoon with uh, Madeline and NG Chun. So I was a group behind Ashley Buhai. I did not see a 64 out there. That was insane. That, that, really, that really shocked me. Um, and she bogeyed 18. You know, it could have been a 63. So props to her, uh, but it certainly was not the – 50 mile per hour, you know, all of that stuff. But I did hear the RNA. They didn't cut the green Saturday because they were nervous about the winds and, and the greens getting too fast. Uh, but they, they did cut them Sunday morning uh, before today. Were you concerned when you heard that? I was slightly concerned. Yeah. Uh, at Saturday evening, I, I made sure I was, you know, I went into the Muirfield clubhouse. I was having a, a brandy with Martin Slumbers and, and the boys, and, and we made sure, hey, guys, let's let's get the greens cut Sunday morning. Let's have a proper, proper test. It, it seemed like it was um, it was maybe hard to kind of portray that or, or let that shine through on TV, how uh, constant the wind was and how exacting of a test that becomes watching the i mean we saw the 18th hole in the playoff over and over and over and over again but seeing how they had to shape that tee shot a little bit to make sure it didn't with the wind going right hard off the right making sure it didn't go into the left bunkers yet those right bunkers are still in play it's it's one of those things it just seems like gosh if you've played some links golf you understand all of the elements of what's going on here but i don't know if it's translating necessarily to who's, who's watching here for how good the shot making is to get close to some of these holes and avoid the bunkers when it's going to be that firm and when there's that much wind involved especially just with the height that the women hit the ball it's not they're not hitting it over a lot of uh sand or or hazards in front of greens or bunkers in front of greens and holding greens nearly as well with the same uh, spin levels as we see on the men's side it just seemed like 
a place that was perfect for if you could if you're pure in your hybrids or in your three woods. There's a lot of three woods and hybrids going into greens uh, this week on yeah. a lot of holes, especially 18. And uh, it, it was a very demanding test, which I'm kind of with that said, I'm kind of surprised to see a, a a relative no name win the event. I mean, she's one top 10 in her career in majors going into this and just won on one of the most proper tests of golf imaginable with another multi-time major champion breathing down her neck. It's just it's very remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, echo echo everything you said. I almost wish they could pull the microphone covers sometimes yeah. off of the equipment just to give people a, an audio sense of of the wind i mean if i held my cell phone up and just took like a video you you would hear it um you know being inside tents or you know anytime you get inside a structure you really get an appreciation for how constant i mean and, and shit you feel it too i mean it's it's just constantly blowing um now that said i say it didn't gust and it was you know, played the same direction all week. So by the weekend, certainly that the players had at least a good feel for the shots around the course. Um, we'll reiter- reiterate again, Mirfield in, in its routing, it does not play into the wind and downwind. It, it, it goes all around. And so you're playing every possible direction that that wind is coming from, which I think is cool. Yeah. A- Ashley Buhai. So I, hand up did not realize that she played in the final group at the 2019 women's open the one that shibuna won which you know kind of crazy they were both in the final group today uh and she actually held a three-shot lead at the 36 hole mark now that was not a Lynx course at all what was that woburn yeah yeah exactly tremendously popular among her peers this was a uh, a very Players, caddies, a very popular winner. Uh, I think there's going to be a big party somewhere in East Lothian tonight. Her husband, Dave, who, oh, God, they stuck a camera in his face. I almost felt bad for him. Like, they were just five feet away from him for the entire playoff. Um, he caddies for Lee Six. So, you know, they, they just have tons of friends, both players and fellow caddies. Um, I know Ashley had has won, I believe, twice on like bigger let events and then a couple more south african opens which might be considered let i'm not sure so she has one internationally but her first lpga victory of any kind was today um yeah pretty remarkable i was trying to kind of think of an analog on the men's i mean i kind of hate doing that but it's it's where my mind naturally goes so i'm like i was thinking kind of darren clark maybe and just being like a very popular winner um She's 33, so, you know, I know Clark was in his 40s, but uh, just in terms of, like, I think everybody was kind of rooting for um, not a ton of major success at all to speak of prior to that. That was the best I came up with, but if, if you have a one better one. Got, I, had, I, had, I have a feeling that people might be on you for that one, so I, might, I may just say Clark has had some very good major championship finishes and finally – did get his win. I, I was thinking finally broke through more along the okay. lines of Todd Hamilton, honestly, in terms of not necessarily popularity, but uh, record wise. But TC, what were you going to say? I was going to say Rich Beam. Yeah. Uh, Beam was a good one. Championship, but you know, kind of a been around for a while, kind of a grinder, some semblance of success, some wins here or there, but nothing sustained. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, comes and gets it done under the bright lights and, and does it in a pretty, pretty, you know, I would say remarkable fashion kind of, uh, you know, I mean, it's it, like 
what was the lead going into the final round? Five, uh, six, five. five. Yeah. yeah. That was like, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, like you'd almost rather it be a three shot yes. lead because yes. it was crazy. It, it, uh, and then it was rock solid pretty much all the like nine kind of showing some, some, uh, some flashes of, of maybe anxiety going. She clearly didn't have her game today, but was kind of getting away from it or getting away with it. And then nine, I thought nine was such a cool hole. Like it kind of had Madeline's number all week, yeah. uh, you know, where it's just like, it, you know compounding errors right you just you get a little bit out of position you get a little bit off balance and it just punches you in the gut you know and then obviously the triple bogey on 15 but it was super super impressive to see how she steadied herself after that her distance control was so good even like you know all all day yesterday and then really even today uh without even having her game that was that was a really impressive uh you know kind of buckle down performance those last few holes i know tc you you're a big fan of her uh her husband running out on the green 0.8 seconds after a hole in that final part i there. thought it was a little thirsty i mean you know i i talked to a couple of players about it afterwards i was, I was DMing back and forth and like you know he's he's shit-faced like he, he's i will say there were so many beers going around behind that green it was like Okay, first playoff all over. Everybody's running inside and just getting as many beers as they can from the bar and, and bringing them out to everybody. Uh, it was, yeah. The, the Like I said, there's going to be a party tonight. Tron, I think you were dead on, though. I, I wrote down in my notes, her tempo was so good all day. Even the ninth hole that she bogeyed, and she had a bogey early in her round, but just didn't look rattled. And that's, you know, Sully, I know you talk about the the beauty uh, of Lynx golf a lot. I, I mean, just that one thing that just jumps up and can can really bite you and start that those compounding airs, Tron, as you said, which happened on 15. I mean, it was kind of a perfect storm at first. I the the I don't know if you guys had a better feed. I mean, I saw the ball land in the bunker. I was just shocked that her only play was directly left into, I mean, some of the thickest grass on the course. I I, I couldn't believe she didn't try to just chop it over the lip. Um, I don't know if you guys had a better look at that than I did. No, I, I didn't, but I, I wonder if there's something to, you know, maybe she just ended up in a way worse lie than she was expecting, right? All the grass was laying forward, if I remember right, and it uh, – yeah, it, it, it does and can compound. Also, I'm sure she's probably thinking like, man, it seems like there is a mixtape of somebody when there's a mixtape of somebody blowing something at a British Open of some kind. It usually includes a bunker face. It yeah. includes something that's hard to get True. out of. And like what could happen if I hit the lip and it comes back into my own footprints or into my own splash mark? Like that's the way I could truly lose it. And uh, but yeah, it turns out I mean, that's that's just what. It's just also worth noting. I mean, obviously she won, but just also just worth noting, like who all the people that fell off the pace, all the people that couldn't like dodge all the landmines that are around Muirfield and all the people she outlasted over this much time. It is kind of like a, you know, not an emphatic way to win to shoot 75 to win, but man, look at all the names that she beat and uh, all the people that were not even in contention, not even able to put anything close to that together uh, to this point. Big time. And it's remarkable. Big time leader. Yeah. I mean, massive leaderboard, like, you know, and, and really not to take anything away from, from, uh, from uh, NG Chun. Cause she was, you know, she was nails down the stretch as well. And, you know, 70, 70 on the weekend, you know, couple bogeys, 10 and 12, but Randy question for you, uh, the par threes out there, you know, like they don't really pop on TV, 
But Jeff Shackelford had a great uh, piece on him this week about a how they're all slightly uphill, which I've never thought about as far as great par threes go. Where and he had some quotes from Jack Nicholas about how Jack loves downhill par threes. Closing <laughs> 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 it with that and the thirteenth hole out there, like there's some Tom Simpson quotes that that basically, you know, like he just drags Harry Colt, uh, who's one of the greatest architects of all time. <laughs> about it so wanted to see like do those do those holes pop for you as well yeah they they look great from the ground i mean four i, I loved where they put the pin today on four kind of back left and yet a huge fall off just to the as you're looking at it just to the left of that flag um the seventh played pretty short all week but but again kind of an uphill and and a pushed up green uh 13 was awesome that that my favorite part three there. Uh, it, it just is the, those bunkers frame that green so well uh, down by the T. So they had a really cool viewing stand right behind that T. And it's just like, man, there is not a lot of room to land that golf ball. Um, now, with that said, with all those those part threes and, and they're a little elevated and they're well guarded by bunkers. But again, they do give you the the, you know, the, the direct path short of the green so so there's always that play to play a little short and to let the ball bounce and let it run up uh, so there is a shot there to be played it's just you you gotta you gotta execute um it kind of reminded me tron of uh the, the the part threes have a little bit i don't know i'm getting out of my skis here but but they almost had like a royal dornick feel to them in the sense that um you know just those green complexes and they, they kind of really fall away in the bunkering. Um, but, but there's a shot there to be played, but it's like, you got to hit a good one. You got some scar tissue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Three's hit real Dornick. Yeah. Number 10, especially. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the part threes were, were phenomenal. Most people have scar tissue on six as yeah. well. If you find enough times. Yeah. I, I wanted to go when, when you're talking about uh, one thing I forgot to mention with, with Buhai. I think looking back on it, the 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 hole that made it, the shot that made it for uh, was the 14th. She she kind of ballooned her second shot. 14, 50 were playing extremely difficult, like dead into the teeth of the wind. They were you know 400 plus yard par fours, and she hit an unbelievably good chip on 14 to about three feet, made the par, and. That's where I, I mean, that's where I was like, holy shit, she's not showing any cracks here. Um, of course, she goes on to triple 15, but had she bogeyed 14 and then triple 15, I wonder if she she would have held it together there down the stretch. So big credit to her. She came back. She hit the middle of the green on 16. Um, 17, I was both like, I couldn't believe that. I mean, that was a birdie hole that was playing pretty downwind there. And uh, both Inji Chun and and Ashley failed to make birdie, which surprised me. But then they both made good pars on 18 um, to to force the playoff. Obviously, Inji Chun too. I, I will say she, God, she she had some putts. I mean, yeah, she burned an edge on 14. I think lipped out. She burned an edge on 15. She was one rotation short on a birdie putt on 16. She burned the edge on 17. I mean, I, I think she's going to be kicking herself a little bit. I, I feel like, not that, not that she gave it to Ashley, but it was certainly there for Ng to take it. 
and contrast that with Buhai's Saturday, which like every time I had it, like walked into the room and, and was watching it, she's chipping in. She was holding something amazing chip in on 17 on Sunday when she had but- or Saturday when she had butchered that hole. It was just like it was adding up to like it, you to win majors. Like this is the kind of things that have to you have to have happen. And she had it happen. It was on Saturday and not Sunday. But uh, and she needed every one of those uh, shots of that lead. I will say no notes on the playoff format. I think it's great. Just send him right back out to the the same hole over and over again on repeat. That was that was fantastic. It was like the, it was like that European tour event they had. Oh, this was probably four or five years ago, where they just it was in Spain, I think, and they just kept sending them back. I, like I think they played the same hole ten times in a row, and it was a bad hole too. I, I mean, eighteen yeah. at Muirfield is certainly not a bad hole, but um, but yeah, it's it's just frustrating when you see that many good holes out there, and you're like, fuck, we gotta go play this one again. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. It uh. Uh, why yeah, would this no, one I, be I one hole? Good. Why would this one be sudden death and the men's be four holes? Like I, I, I don't really think I understand that. Well, that's what that's what kind of bothers me a little bit. Um, I just think a major it, it it you should have at least a three hole aggregate to decide a major, in my opinion. If if you're not going to play yeah. an eighteen hole playoff, which I do advocate for, I love the eighteen hole playoff. <laughs> uh, at least play a, a three or four hole aggregate, I think. I agree. I think it's, you know, comes down to sample size and, and you know, you, you just played 72 holes. I think you, you kind of deserve to, you know, have, have a little bit more of a sample size than one hole. And then if you go to a second hole playing the same hole once again, like that, that hole could favor certain shot tendencies or whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm still, I'm still shocked at the, the 64 on Saturday. I remember like like turning it on on Saturday and being like, just like for an hour straight, just being like, holy shit. Like she's making this look so freaking easy. Shibuno played really, really well as well. I mean, she shot 66. Allison Lee shot 67. Like there were some other decent rounds out there, but nothing like, nothing even to that level, uh, you know, at all. Especially like she kept doing it on the back nine, which like, you know, front nine is much easier than the back nine, it seemed like. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Shibuno, man. I was I'm She's just the I, best. I, I cannot I can't get enough of her. She, she rules. She's electric. She, uh, she's just got an aura about her. Yeah. Yeah, she's almost impossibly nice. I mean, just reading the quotes and and her mindset, I mean, it, it looks like she genuinely just like wants the best for every single person in every single instance. Um she just I I mean, also I, she was hanging around uh, behind 18 green for the playoff and just like jumping up and down was so excited. Like, I don't even know who she was rooting for, but she was, <laughs> I, I think she was truly just like rooting for golf. Uh, it, she, she is a breath of fresh air and man, I love her swing. I mean, as, as somebody who, who drops it and, and comes from the inside, watching her swing um, is, is a lot of fun. She, she's kind of like the smiling assassin a little bit. Uh, it, it, yeah, very fun to watch. She makes, I mean, she makes big putts. That that double on fourteen was really her only big misstep today. Uh, yeah, at an eagle five. But man, and like her her smile, her attitude, her swing, her 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 outfits. I mean, all of it. Just, I'm like, I just I can't get enough. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. She's no, I'm ex- with you. Extremely easy to root for. Are we gonna be are kicking ourselves a little bit? Is this one that we uh, that Madeline uh, let get away a little bit? I yes and no. I mean, I think she could look. I mean, God, if she just played the fourteenth hole better, she would 
you know, she'd be in a playoff. This was a big one for Madeline in the sense that obviously she she finished second last year at Carnoustie. But what was different about this year than last year was, if you'll remember, last year at Carnoustie, the, the wind did not blow at all, uh, really across all four days. So it was a very, very tame Carnoustie. And to see Madeline come back at, again, a, a proper, proper golf course like Muirfield, with a, a stiff wind, um, she battled. I mean, she she hit some squirrely shots for sure. She hit some excellent shots. But I think, you know, talking to her a little bit, talking to her caddy Shane, trying to get a feel for, you know, what they thought about the week. She's learning to play Lynx golf. Uh, I think it suits her very, very well. I, I think what she can take this week is she is plenty good enough to be a major champion on the LPGA. And I, I just think she needs that confidence. She has to believe in herself that, you know, sh- she is a major, worthy of a major championship. Uh, and, and I really, God, I think she's going to get one here in the next couple of years. I, I just think, I, I see her game ascending. I agree. I think there's something to be said about it where she's just like, she, she was almost hitting the ball too well hmm. on some of those tee shots. Yes. <laughs> one of those bunkers that they're like hey that bunker hasn't even been remotely in play this week so the third yeah the third round number 10 um it was like 313 to reach the the one of the far left bunkers and she hit it in there on saturday uh ended up i believe making a a greasy par but i asked her caddy after the round i'm like hey i gotta believe you didn't think that was in play he's like we hadn't been within 30 yards of that bunker this week she just she hits the shit out of the ball. Now she she can get a little squirrely still. Uh, she had two re- really poor shots into the par three seventh, both Saturday that led to a bogey and today that led to a bogey. And, and I mean, just kind of like little wedges, uh, short irons. So there's some stuff she can clean up. You know, I think that's probably the difference that I saw watching her and Ng Chun on Saturday throughout their rounds was you know Ng. She doesn't hit it better than Madeline by any stretch of the imagination, but Inji just plotted her way around. And the other thing I saw Inji do was she just had like a little feathery driver when she needed it, kind of that like 75, 80% driver, just making sure she avoided bunkers, took taking, you know, automatic bogeys out of play and just chartered her way around and and put together just a ho-hum routine 70 and i think madeline is more like you know she has the great shots and then she has a couple squirrely shots she'll find a bunker i think she just needs to tighten it up a little bit um kind of plot her way around the course really really think through the round and execute would be the final step for her um but her her confidence putting i mean she is putting the ball so well she talks about like I, I think she expects to make nearly every putt uh she takes so i hope she can i i hope it's i, I she was frustrated I, I think she felt like she had a chance this week uh and, and certainly the the 10 under number i you know that that would have been a 68 for today it was out there with a really good round but there's a lot a lot of positives to to take away as well yeah, I mean, shit, being, being pissed after a T four, yeah, four, you know, back to back top five finishes and back to back years, yeah, for 
then you have a championship game and she's pissed. That's that's a good sign. But yeah, I I love watching her play, man. It's like really like even when the putts aren't going, it's the, the expectation is that they're gonna start going. And shout out to um, I'm not going to get tricked into doing it. We're not going to do it, TC. But a shout out to no, Leona come on, McGuire. let's go down. Leona McGuire and Minji Lee also <laughs> with T4 finishes as well. I'm sure the Irish are going to be all over. So we don't mention uh, Leona's best best I finish. Leona's, I thought Leona's was a little bit of a backdoor. 66 today. Uh, wasn't really involved at all. Whereas Minji was more like she shot four rounds under par. Minji did. I think Minji Lee is far and away the the, the best ladies golfer in the world right now and it's like not particularly close i i think she's the the most consistently great player for sure just seems like she has a super high floor right now um like you said just kind of hey, 68 70 70 69 tied for fourth and i don't know i she probably isn't like super thrilled with with her game uh and yeah, you're exactly right about Leona. Definitely a backdoor. But having said that, shot the round of the day today. The 66 was the low round, so props for that. But uh, yeah, we I think we're all, you know, Leona got her has gotten her first LPGA win this year on the heels of the the massive Solheim Cup performance last fall. So we'll definitely be looking for her to make some consistent noise next year in the majors as well. This is her. This is her best major championship finish so far in her career. Yeah. As well, so that's just that's noteworthy, I think. Couple other shout outs. I mean, Celine Boudier. I think she's got to be kicking herself a little bit. Seventy four in the third round. Finished mm-hmm. T seven. Seventy four in third round. And then Lynn Grant T nineteen. She's final round sixty eight. She's uh, here already, and I think it's the sky's the limit. I can't wait. I can't wait to follow her career over the next eighteen to twenty four months. Yeah, I got to. Uh, I made a point to follow her this morning. Actually, tried to catch her for most of her her front nine. Just like really good, <laughs> you know. I, I, you know, I didn't see enough or or learn enough to to really give you too much specifics or or whatnot. But certainly looks like she belongs. Carries herself like she belongs. I think she would like to play the LPGA. There might be some outside mitigating factors on, on whether she can play consistently in the United States, read into that what you will. Um, but Just two, we'll shot, two shots outside the cut line. I think <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that kind of takes care of itself by, by next year. And we can see a lot more of her in the States selfishly would, would love to, to, to watch more of her uh, play golf. Big when is, uh, when's, when's Rose turning pro? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, TC. N- nobody knows. So she's she's definitely going back to Stanford for her sophomore year. Um, and that Stanford team is adding uh, Megagane and another, I believe, Emily, Kelly Shoe, Emily Shoe. I got to look that up, but another top 100 amateur. So they're going to be stacked. This is purely, purely guessing, especially if Stanford wins another team title, depending on how Rose does too. I got to think maybe after two years, it's like, okay, not a whole lot more to accomplish in amateur golf. So I I would maybe look after next year. uh, I I think I'd be pretty shocked if she stayed four years. So I, I think maybe in the next year. Definitely too. Last question for me on uh, LPGA. Any any Charlie Hall sightings out there? Did see Charlie Hall. Always great to see Charlie Hall. Charlie Hall's sister was uh, on the grounds this week. Just a uh, a fascinating family. Love just love their aesthetic. Love their attitude. 
uh, always, always a treat to see, uh, to see Charlie didn't, did not really get to watch her play at all, but, uh, she was, she was around, I think she may have fought. Yeah. She saw 74 today, finished even par, but I had a pretty good week. I mean, all told tied for 22nd. Um, but had it going through three rounds, especially. I just had to bring that up. Cause our guy, uh, our guy, Ken sent, he sent a really nasty email over to you. He said, this guy's this guy, Randy that you've got, he's not well informed. Uh, I, I listened to the Evian uh, pod. He does not know anything about women's golf at all to say that Brooke Henderson was on death watch is a, is an absolute joke. She has won three times in the last two years and 12 wins overall. And then he, and then he went on to, to be really upset about, you know, you, you pumping up Charlie Hall. Oh, well, I won't apologize to, to Ken. And I think people misunderstand what death watch is. I mean, Rory won a bunch, but he's been dead for ages. It's not about regular tour wins. I mean, that's what we expect out of some of the best players in the world. Yeah. It's, it's can you win majors and listen, all credit to Brooke. She answered the bell, uh, four rounds under par this week. Uh, I, I, happily will eat my words. I, I think I, I will never speak ill again of Brooke. Brooke Henderson. Two two majors is a lot different than one major. So good on her. I appreciate that, Randy. That's very big of you. Randy, I know it's going to be close to bedtime for you. Anything else uh, from uh, from the week at, at Muirfield? I just want to say it was, it was you know, if you allow me to get a little sappy, it was really awesome just to have the women playing there. You know, it's, it's a club, oldest club in, in the world. Uh, their history stretches back over 250 years, which is just, you know, before America was a country, they, they were recording golf matches and, and club goings on. And so to finally, you know, have the best women in the world play that golf course, it was it was a good thing for golf. And I thought they, they put on a wonderful tournament. Um, it, it was a, a championship worthy of, you know, the, the women's British Open. And so really, really look forward to getting back there sooner than later, but uh, just really happy that, that the women have played Muirfield and we can kind of move forward and hopefully it becomes part of the rota for them. Here, 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 here. And they got outrageous lineup coming up. You know, they got Walton Heath, old course, and fourth call coming up over the next several years. So this no more, no more Wilburn, thankfully. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I flew over Wales on the way, on the way out of London, uh, we flew over Wales. It was a clear day. Man, I was looking down on some cool golf courses yeah. over there. I'm excited. excited yeah. So we, we got to get our boy Corrigan to show us around. Yeah. Well, boys, I'm going to pack up. I'm coming back stateside. Uh, it's time for me to get home, but appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, I'll bow out before you guys talk about too much live stuff here. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Travel safe. Thanks, travel safe. Right. See you guys. A quick break here before TC and I chat about the Wyndham. Of course, our friends at Roback have been great supporters of their show. We've been wearing their gear for a while now. Maybe it's just because I wear it so frequently that now I notice it so much more frequently when I'm boarding planes or if I'm at golf tournaments. I saw a lot of it over in Europe. I was very surprised uh, to see that as well. I absolutely love their performance polos. They fit a lot better than your typical boxy polos. Their four-way stretch is next level. The material is super soft, stays wrinkle-free. They went through over 20 iterations of the collar alone to ensure it keeps its shape. Next, the Performance Q-Zips are a game-changer. Perfect. I keep one in my golf bag at all times. They're very soft. They're great for fall mornings, for fall evenings. They're the definition of versatile. You can wear them on the golf course. You can wear them pretty much anywhere. And lastly, the Performance Hoodies. I'm wearing my favorite green one right now. They're the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. They're the most comfortable 
performance hoodies on the entire market. You can wear them multiple times without washing them. I probably shouldn't admit to that as much as I do, but Roback is gaining traction big time. And you can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order. Uh, that's Roback.com, R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com, 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code NLU. Uh, they got a lot of great stuff for the fall. So check them out now. And thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Oh, TC, this is, it was an emotional, emotional, emotional booth here uh, about 30 seconds ago as, uh, as Faldo was signing off for, for the last time. I hate, to, I hate to start with this, but man, that was a little dramatic. The guy's retiring. It's not like he's dying or something like that. Are you emotional? Are you getting emotional on me? It hasn't really hit me yet that, that we will no longer be having Sir Nick on the uh, on the broadcast. There's been way too much going on in golf to care who the actual commentators are on PGA Tour golf, but it's it's time. I thought we were going to you know have him on for many 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 more years to come, but it is time to, time to move on. And uh, I'm not upset about it. Uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there feel the same way as I do. How do you feel? I mean, a lot of a lot of longevity there. I don't know if it's it's well earned longevity, but it's longevity nonetheless. Uh, it feels more and more like a pushed aside versus a retirement. <laughs> if I can say like, you know, everybody seems to be treating it much more like, Hey, we wish you weren't going kind of thing versus, Hey, you know what? Like have a great time <laughs> up fishing in retirement, you know, up in Montana. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really want to, you know, kick him to no, no, no. I've done that enough, but it's one of those things like the last, last few weeks on the PGA tour have been have been tough tough as it is so it's kind of you got to find something to kind of hang your hat on if you're cbs yeah it's been uh it's been a tough tough little stretch and golf tournaments is interest level and, and all kinds of things we can talk about that uh you know as we as the regular season wraps up here but first of all we are officially in the tom kim era who has had a blazing hot summer it's kind of coming a bad time for us when we've been kind of all over the place and haven't been able to probably closely follow this as much as we probably should have but 20 years old and two months PGA tour winner um, has been has been balling out for a good six weeks. Really seems like uh, had a great finish at the Scottish open had another, uh, I had it in front of me and now I don't another top 10 finish. I believe at the rocket mortgage and goes out, shoots 61 today. She opens with 27 on the front nine. And I totally missed this while it was happening. I was watching the, the women's British and uh, shoots eight under on the front, goes out and shoots 61 today to win his first PGA tour event. Absolutely outrageous. Yeah, sixty-one with a with a bogey uh, on ten as well. That's uh, that, that's pretty strong. He um, opened the tournament with a quad. He made quad on the first yeah. hole of the tournament, which and and it wasn't an egregious like, or maybe it was even more egregious because he didn't hit like you know didn't go in a water. No, or anything like that. nothing. It was, it was it was just very benign quad right up front, and and then you know kind of a a you know, playing Plinko around the greens and, and, you know, just kind of a weird, weird way to start the tournament. And then, yeah, boat raced everybody and still, and still won by five. One by five with a quad. I mean, uh, what's his name? David Tobbs. Remember when he made quad on the 18th hole at the, on a Sunday at the, oh, at the Wells Fargo. That was like the first year they had it at, uh, at a quail hollow. He made yeah. quad on 18 to win by four. Like this was a little bit flip of that, but I, I wonder, I'm sure Justin Ray's all over it. How many guys have, uh, won a golf tournament by five shots after making a quad. That's 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 outrageous. I mean, think about how many guys have like won a golf tournament by five shots. Period. <laughs> like it's crazy. It's so many uh, shots. His game know, is thinking, interesting. Yeah. He is not hit it very far. I mean, he was hitting like one sixty ball speed coming down the stretch today. 
And uh, if you look at his data golf profile, he is not a long hitter at all. And I don't know. I, I just I feel like I didn't really hear a whole lot about this guy coming up uh, until maybe two or three months ago. And he's taking the golf world pretty much by storm. I mean, earned special temporary membership even before this and goes out and wins it. Now he's in the playoffs. Now he's a PJ Tour member. And uh, off to the playoffs. Who knows what the hell is going to happen in the playoffs for him? Yeah, I wasn't familiar with him at all until until the Scottish. Um, you know, finished finished twenty third U.S. Open, I guess. But uh, but otherwise, it was pretty much all all Asian tour stuff. Um, all uh, Asian. I mean, looks like he's won a couple couple big dick events on the Asian tour, big dick events on the Korean tour. Um, but yeah, you you could you know, Sally. Five, you know, four or five months ago, you would have been labeling this guy a manipulator. But he comes out and does it on the PGA Tour. You can shed the yeah. manipulator status very quickly. And first of all, I would have said, the guy's freaking 20. Like, this is a enormous story. I mean, maybe it, it is, uh, I don't know. I feel like we should have been, the golf world should be more excited, myself included, as to what just happened. If it was, you know, a college kid, a, a college, you know, kid in their 20s winning a PGA Tour event, we'd be freaking out a lot uh, over this. But uh, I don't know. I guess time will tell. We we gotta get gather a little more intel on him. But he's an outrageously accurate driver and not a long hitter, and uh, seems to have, uh, you know, he, he's uh, the PJ Tour released a great little video on him, a little profile on. He speaks great English. Like he's uh, he seems to be an exceptionally well rounded person. He was talking about how he comes to the U.S. and he just he gets fatter every time he comes here because he eats at Chick Fil A and Taco Bell and Del Taco and he listed Panda Express. He listed he's listing this off and I was like, okay, yeah, this dude's extremely young because I hear these things and I'm like, oh, okay, well that that would be five pounds for me. That would he's be gonna nice. he's gonna grow out of that. Like, yes, uh, yeah. that'd be diarrhea for me if we go in there and uh, he's handling it with uh, with ease and winning golf tournaments. But he's at least aware that. Uh, what is some of his decision making may not be good for the long term? Yeah, and and I mean, you know, I think today to do it against Sungjae, yeah, as well, you know, to come out and beat Sungjae by seven in the final round, uh, who's kind of the the preeminent Korean golfer right now, is just it's wild. And Sungjae's starting to play some really, really, really good golf. I think he's going to have a big, big uh, FedEx Cup playoffs uh, <laughs> and coming I, up. I don't want to go too. Uh, I don't want to go too Carol Bevins on this, but I think Tom Kim has a chance to endear himself so much better to uh, the like American golf public than like somebody like Sungjae because he's so open and speaks English, right? I mean, we we've never really heard Sungjae do an interview in English, which is understandable. I think we've always been quick to commend you know foreign players that come over and don't speak English when they do make attempts to do it, and understand there's extreme pressure and challenges that come to that, but. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a pretty easy for people to, to root for this guy because he seems like, uh, I don't know, just a delightful dude to root, root for. Yeah, you know, Wyndham, I like this tournament overall. I think it could be a really, really good, solid tournament. It's kind of a shame that the tour hasn't elevated it more or like figured out how to elevate it more. It's the end of the regular season. There's a lot on the line. And over the last few years, they just they cannot get guys to play this event. I think that's more of a, refl a reflection of like, dude, I'm, we're not going to play four in a row. Like we're just not. So yeah. we're not going to show up for this one. I think they've done a decent job of elevating it by basically saying like, hey, we're just going to be a big bonus to the dudes that finish in the top 10. Like you can go show up if you move up from fourth to third in the in the Comcast business tour top 10. That's big extra money. Like that's nobody actually the, uh, the dudes that all skipped it when Wyndham was sponsoring the Wyndham Rewards. And none of the top 10 showed up. Like that was the death blow. It was very much just like, a, sure. like you just can't, I don't know. You can't ask, maybe you need an off week after it before the playoffs. 
Uh, that would that would be my thing. Would be just just layer in an off week, right? And because you know, and you've got the the Corn Ferry Tour uh, finals don't start until two weeks from now. There's one more week going on Corn Ferry Tour as well, uh, especially because they used to have the four playoff events on tour as well. I don't know. I we can get into the schedule stuff here in a bit, but you know, it's just kind of endemic of like this tournament should mean something or this spot on the calendar should mean something. And it, and it doesn't at all. Right. It's no, like, everybody's already clinched up there. You know, it's like a playoff team. You know, it's like an NFL playoff team. That's, that, that's, it's already clinched home field advantage and they're shutting it down and resting their starters in, you know, week 17 or I guess week 18 now. And I can't tell if it's just a reflection of all those other stuff we've had going on outside of the pro golf world of travel and all that, that, makes it pretty easy to drop out, but it just seemed like the drama around 125 and who's going to make the playoffs and keep their card was uh, just not, not quite delivering the same uh, level of suspense. And we had a, a, a strong stake in one of these with one of the guys we sponsored being Justin Lauer. Yeah. Gosh, Lauer uh, misses a putt on 18. I mean, he, you know, it was like a 70 foot, uh, you know, two putt he had to do on 18. Didn't hit a great, great shot in there, but um, you know, finishes, I think, 127th. Now, it, he would have gotten knocked out anyway, I guess, because Tom Kim, as a non-member winning the event, he he hops into member status immediately and then takes one of the 125 spots. So even if Justin would have finished 125th, which he would have if he would have made that putt, he would have gotten bumped back to 126th by the end of the day. That would have, um, have been tougher. That If he made the putt and fist pumped it and all that, and then, yeah, sorry, no. <laughs> Yeah, the vagaries of of the you know PGA Tour uh, categories and and you know membership bylaws and everything. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said as well for. It seems like this year of all years, like like a you know like I mean Zach Blair, friend of ours, he he finished 126th a few years ago. I'm not sure if there's just a curse that we have going or whatever, but he finished 126 you know back two, three or four years ago. Ended up getting like 20 starts. Yeah. So it's like Justin's gonna get plenty of starts out of that category. It's like, yeah, you can't quite, you know, you're 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 coming out of a slightly low category, but but overall, I think he's 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 gonna get plenty of starts. Plus, there's there's gonna be more guys leaving after the tour championship who you know are gonna open up even more spots in you know like because I feel like that's been the theme of the summer has just been how weak some of these fields are on the lower end. Like you know, the top end's still still strong in certain cases. But they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with the John Houston's and the Omar Uresti's and all that to to kind of fill out these fields a little bit, yep. you know. And it's it's a tough look. Yeah. Um, so Austin Smotherman is now Mister One Twenty Six um, with with Kim. It's, gosh, he, yeah, he played well. Like he kind of had a really really strong back end of the year. I mean, there were some other guys as well that like didn't get their cards. Like um, Nick Hardy didn't end up getting his card. Uh, Harry Higgs. Uh, he missed out earlier when I was looking at uh, Ricky was out. He's back in. Yep. Ricky's in. Okay. So Ricky's in. Matt Wallace slightly. I think he finished. He was 125. So he's in. Okay. Yeah. But was he finishing one? I think he was in that 125 spot and then he bumps to 126, right? Uh, I assume the, um, the list I'm looking at now has Kim in it. I think you're giving the tour way too much credit. To have that list the one correct. thing that they're actually pretty good at is keeping the uh, the FedEx the projected FedEx Cup pretty darn up up to date. I, I could be wrong there. I who could say? And I don't. I don't. I I I'm at my limit in terms of what I can care about yeah. at the PGA Tour level in that regard. But yeah, like you know, Smotherman missed the cut after after shooting a first round sixty five. Oh. 
this week. Like that's that's tough. Charlie Hoffman finished 146. Nick Hardy 131. Martin Trainer, your boy 134. Uh, Kelly Craft, Doc Redman, kind of a really really bad season for him. Kind of after a good good start, and then Sabatini finishing in the 140s. We got. That. Are we going down the leaderboard on the FedEx Cup of guys that didn't make? The I always think. How did you I always think into this? That's what I like about this event. It's kind of you know, it's like it's truly all right. It's dictating where these guys are going to be, more so for the next four to six weeks than than necessarily next season because most of them are going to still be playing mostly PGA Tour events because it's like you know once you have relative status, it's fucking hard to get rid of it. You know, and then guys that played well this week to get inside. Uh, Kramer Hickok uh, made the cut. I think he finished like 124th. Brian Stewart, he was in, made the cut. I don't know if you saw that video from earlier uh, that I tweeted mm-hmm. of him. Uh, he, 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 he spent 47 seconds over the ball. Just like I think there was one earlier in the year where he, he did it around Brooks. Same kind of thing. Just like almost tricks you into thinking that the the video is on loop, but the, but you know, <laughs> was just, you know, talking over it. And it's like, all right, clearly like this is a live shot. And it was one of the most egregious displays of, of pace of play I've ever seen. He dropped out, I guess, uh, chess and Hadley went from one twenty one to one twelve. So like just big, to, like make the cut and have some, some peace of mind going into the weekend. Kevin Tway is, is inside the, the top one twenty five. I don't think I've heard his name in, in, months if not years and then max mcgreevy was he was 126 going into the week and ended up finishing you know really really good finish and put it on the line i like it i i always have respect for the guys that go out knowing what they have to do this week and get it done careers on the line yeah yeah it's 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 impressive it's you know it shows some stones it shows some grit so and now it's playoff time. Now, I think uh, to your point earlier about an off week, I'm sure the tour would respond to that saying we are trying to beat football. Like the whole goal is to get get all this in before football season starts. And uh, we can we can kind of take some off weeks in the fall, but it's a, a, a tough, tough time to do it. But, yeah, it seems like there's something missing from this event. Um, and I don't really, really know what the answer is, but it's just it's just a tough little stretch, you know, after, after St. Andrews and uh, a pretty exciting stretch there leading up to it it's just that this three weeks is is a a really tough stretch i think this this playoffs has a chance to be somewhat interesting i think it uh the big questions are going to loom as to you know whoever it jumps up to the top does that mean their price is going up for for live stuff and things like that but um i'm excited to see uh wilmington country club and and the bmw championship and then this new setup with fedex and and uh st jude all that into into the playoffs and, and whatnot is um I don't know. We're uh, four out of ten excitement, I guess you could say, which is up from three point five from previous playoff years. Yeah, I agree. I think you know what? I'm looking for Victor Hovland to to like to step up in this playoffs. I think he loved like he tweeted out or put something on Insta today. He loves loves Southwind. It's like one of his favorite favorite venues of the entire year. He's fresh off setting the course record at uh, Lufthansa Links. <laughs> T four at the open. Uh, I don't know. I I think it's time for Hovland to to kind of, you know, ascend to the throne a little bit more than he has. Um, but but yeah, I would love to be more excited about. Like I'm I'm excited about FedEx and and BMW much more so than the Tour Championship. I just I'm so over East Lake, man. Yeah. It's it's just such a hard course to 
to uh, get up for. Yeah, it's just feeling really repetitive. Yeah, it's just I don't know. It's just not a good. It's just not an entertaining golf course, in my opinion. So. It, well, just watching guys chase huge amounts of cash on that golf course. It's just a, in in the dead of summer, and you know when football's right around the corner. It's just yeah, it uh, is one of the one of the many flaws in in the in the PGA Tour, if you will. But a couple of other guys, uh, Sally, that that you know notables missing the playoffs and and some of them by a mile. Cameron Champ, 132. Harris English, 185th. Now, I know he's been hurt. Yeah, it's uh, been a tough injury year for him, I'm sure. And he had two wins last year, so he's, he was stacking you know, stacking his eligibility there. And then Webb Simpson, I know he's been hurt as well, but 100, 121st, made it so uh, inside the line. But, man, Webb's, Webb's fallen off with that neck injury as well. Mm-hmm. Anything else from uh, from Wyndham? I know it's uh, it's it's been it's been good to get a little break on our end from uh, from following this week to week, I guess, and uh, we'll dive back in as as the playoffs get fired up here. But biggest thing on my end is just it comes back to the schedule. Like you know, Tour released their 2022 2023 schedule. Uh, I know they're nuking. You know, like basically it's the exact same as before. I think Rocket Mortgage moves up a week or two earlier. That's really the only change, Uh, and I know that that means they're kind of putting all their eggs in the basket of we're going to make wholesale changes in, you know, it for the 2023 uh, or really the 2024 season because they're going to get rid of the fall series or kind of do something else with that. But my hope is that like, they really, all right, we're giving you the, the latitude and the patience to go do that. But like, you better follow through on it because I thought uh, Andy Johnson and uh, Joseph LaMagna over on their, um, Joseph wrote a great piece on the fried egg site about just like how bad the schedule is and how they've let it kind of deteriorate and get like this. And they had a great, you know, great talk about it on their pod as well. And it's just like, like nothing means anything. And when, when you're, when you're quote unquote, like, you know, big events are kind of struggling along or or kind of plodding along, it, it cheapens everything else as well. And when there's only, you know, a dozen times that, that, that the top guys really tee it up against one another and you don't own any of the majors. Uh, it's just, you know, I mean, it's the same stuff we've been saying for the last three or four years, but we're just kind of cogently summarized. And there's some good ideas in there just about like kind of incentivizing guys to show up, you know, whether it's 12 or 16 or 18 times at the same events. Like it seems like they, there kind of needs to be a tour within a tour. Sounds right. like they figured that out, though. I mean, that's we've been screaming this from the rooftops, though. Like, it just doesn't make sense to start your season with 13 events in the fall that like nobody really actually wants to play. And now yeah. it's like your season starts in January, and we have eight events now that are big ass money that like no one's going to skip. Maybe like five percent of the top 50 are going to skip, but like the, the, the I think they're they've finally gotten through the, the point has finally gotten through of creating a tour within the tour is what is going to happen with these, uh, with, with the schedule in 24, we got to put up with another year of the same old thing and same old shit. And it's going to feel even longer than ever with everything yeah. else going on. There's going to be plenty of events with horrible, horrible, horrible fields. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I initial reaction, I was kind of, I thought their, their changes were kind of dull, but upon more thought and DJ kind of hammered in the thought, uh, our DJ hammered, hammered in the thought as well of just being like, Hey, like a lot of the things that we've been calling for, they've done. And it's just, it's still, I mean, as we sit here in July or August of 2022, it's eight, almost 18 months away uh, before we actually yeah. see it come to fruition. So 
Yeah, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's something to where, like, just seeing this play out in slow motion where, hey, you've, you've kind of, at the expense of the tour at large, for the benefit of the guys in that 75 to 150 range, you've you've pissed off, you, like, you've managed to kind of alienate and piss off some of the best players in the world. And it's like, like, why? Like, what's the point? And I know, you know, it's it's kind of, from a membership perspective, it's probably not readily apparent until it's too late or until it's, you know, a glaring issue. But man, it's just, it's, it's wild to me that like they couldn't see around the corner on this and that they, you know, tour leadership had such perverse incentives to just maximize starts and cheapen the product to the point where, you know, here we are talking about ostensibly the Wyndham and we haven't talked about really a single shot at the tournament. No, yeah. <laughs> You no, know, it's just when you have this many golf shots played out and they're all supposed to be important, like how can you how can you even get excited about the birdies and bogeys and all that stuff uh, happening in, in the short term? But TC, why don't we take a quick little break here and bring in some guests to talk about uh, a big development in the sports, in the golf sports world uh, this last couple of this past week regarding the lawsuit. So let's do that and we'll catch up with you on the back half here. We're going to take a break here and bring in Lauren Donahue, an antitrust lawyer here. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to give a shout out to our friends at Rapsodo. You can go to rapsodo.com slash NLU and use promo code on NLU for $100 off our favorite mobile launch monitor. These things are incredibly accurate. They get within 2% of units that cost $20,000. The mobile launch monitor app from Rapsodo, it automatically tracks your stats, stores video with Shot Tracer, helps you with your club gapping, helps you understand the true distances for each club. The, a really underrated thing about it, it gives you a map of all the shots you hit on the rep soda at the end of your range session, you might think you're, I'm hitting it very straight or I'm tending to miss left when you look at the actual map at the end of it. The, the dispersion pattern isn't necessarily what you'd expect. There's a lot to learn from it. It gives you immediate feedback and just creates a better practice environment. It keeps you from mindlessly hitting balls. It's very portable. The case is about the size of a range fighter. fits on the outside of your golf bag. You can use it indoor and outdoor. So go to rapsodo.com slash NLU, promo code NLU for $100 off our favorite mobile launch monitor. Now bringing in Lauren Donahue here to talk a bit about antitrust and how it relates to the PGA Tour versus Live. All right, Lauren, for, uh, for the listeners' sake, can you tell us uh, why you're here and what you might be helping us with today? Sure. So I understand I'm here to try to give you a little bit of an overview of antitrust law and how the complaint um, kind of fits into the, the framework of antitrust law. Um, I'm a partner at K&L Gates uh, in Chicago office, and I, I'm in the antitrust group, so I uh, deal with a lot of antitrust issues. What is, uh, and I, I promise, I swear, I'm, I'm only asking this for the listeners, not myself at all. I definitely, I understand all this. Like, this is all really, really easy <laughs> for me. But uh, explain what antitrust is and how it, uh, how it may relate to this case. Sure. So antitrust, kind of boiled down to its basics, is the goal of antitrust law is to kind of uh, maintain the free market. So to promote competition, right? The idea is that competition um, provides for better products for consumers, lower prices for consumers. Um, so it's kind of ensure that the free market remains free. So the whole goal of antitrust laws are to promote competition in the marketplace. So you said that you you mentioned the consumers there, and th this case, at least as it relates to the PGA Tour and Live, seems to be a little different. And uh, maybe you would not define it as different, but as you describe it that way, this seems to be about um, you know it's about PGA Tour players being able to play where they want as independent contractors, and and is the PGA Tour's actions of restricting this play uh, is it anti-competitive? Is it an antitrust violation? 
does that make this case unique in that regard? Or is that, uh, you know, is that pretty typical of an antitrust case? You know, not necessarily, it's not necessarily unique. Um, there have been a lot of cases and a lot of emphasis lately on labor markets and ensuring that employees in labor markets um, enjoy competition in who they choose to work for um, in their employment opportunities. So in that sense, you can kind of con- compare the consumers to the employees in that sense as well. One thing I've kind of struggled with uh, in this regard is that one, the PGA Tour has essentially had this this policy regarding how they manage their competitions and how they allow releases or don't allow releases in particular instances with their players. And I'm just curious as to you know why maybe this hasn't been tried or brought to light in the past. I know that this specific league that is being uh, where players are being denied access to go play it is the one bringing the action on it. But this has always been the policy, and it's never. Um, you know, it, there were some rumblings of, uh, you know, the FTC got getting involved in looking into, uh, into it in 1994, but this has not, you know, been at the, at the front burner until, re, uh, until recently. Why, why would that be in your opinion? Um, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure why it hasn't come up before. I mean, one, one theory is that, you know, often employers, especially in this, in this area where there might be one main employer um, in a market, there's a lot of pro-competitive justifications for why they might have certain rules in their contracts. So certain provisions in their contracts, right? Of not, you know, there's often um, like non-compete provisions in an employee-employer contract that they're an employee is agreeing not to not to go to work for a competitor or something of that nature. And there's a lot of pro-competitive reasons for that. And that's kind of a big part of the analysis of the antitrust laws as well in these types of complaints, because how a restraint is analyzed under the antitrust laws, you know, the big question is whether or not that restraint is an unreasonable restraint on competition and whether or not a particular restraint is unreasonable or not. um, There's kind of two areas, two ways in which that can be analyzed. There's certain types of restraints that are considered per se illegal. So they are, the courts have basically deemed them to be so inherently anti-competitive that there can be no pro-competitive justification. And in that camp, it's your kind of like hardcore cartels, price fixing, bid rigging, certain types of group boycotts. But in another analysis, it's that if, if it doesn't fall into that kind of hardcore cartel conduct, then it's analyzed, analyzed under a rule of reason. And what that is, is that you take into account all of the facts and circumstances of the competitive restraint and you weigh whether or not the anti-competitive effects outweigh the pro-competitive benefits. And if the pro-competitive benefits outweigh the anti-competitive effects, then it's deemed not illegal. So I think in that sense, I think they're, you know, one of the reasons why it maybe hasn't come up before is that there might be some good justifications for why leagues like this um, might have restraints like this on their players. Do you have, are you familiar with any other examples in sports of how antitrust exemptions work, what what those examples are, and why the PJ Tour doesn't have one? Should they have gotten one? Could they have applied for one? I, I don't even know where to start with that, but I'm wondering if you, if you have any experience there as to what antitrust exemptions are and why that does or does not apply here. 
Yeah, there are certain um, sports that do have exemptions. I am by no means an expert on it and couldn't give you all of all of the history on it. But I know, you know, baseball has an exemption of the antitrust laws. Um, I believe that's Supreme Court precedent, actually. You know, there have been cases against other other sports. You know, the NFL has been subject of a number of, of uh, actions. There was a recent actually action, I think it was by the Ninth Circuit, a case came down against the NCAA um, and student athletes in this area, so they don't have an exemption. But certain sports have exemptions. I don't, the PGA does not, the golf does not, I understand, you know, whether or not they could have applied for one. I just don't know all the, the background on that. The tour has been incredibly committed to its policy in this regard, it has been very direct uh, I would have to imagine knowing this is coming, and I'm, I, I know this is going to fall outside the scope of, of, of your expertise here, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to uh, a, a big reason of why I've kind of had little faith in, uh, a little bit of faith in what they've been doing is that they must know something. They must know something to help their case in this regard, because if you just look at the facts, it does, there's a lot of flags that go up in, in terms of things that may seem anti-competitive. And that's, again, where I, I just don't know that, but why they've been so committed to it um, in the face of this being obviously going to be coming down the road at them. Why would they be so confident and so direct in how they act? And I'm wondering if you have any insight into that. You, you know, I don't have any direct insight into that, obviously. Um, but it, it might go back to just their their justifications for why they have these types of um, yeah. provisions restricting their players. The fact that if they have been enforcing that consistently, um, that could be in their favor, right? They, they obviously believe they have some justification for it. So whether or not that justification kind of overcomes the anti-competitive effects of it, um, that's, that's going to be a, probably an issue of fact for the courts. How will this all play out, at least timeline-wise? How will it affect golf fans, at least? I know that there's a there's a temporary restraining order within uh, this this complaint that's been issued, as it only relates to three players, and um, I, I'm I guess that's going to be resolved here in this in the coming weeks, I believe, on Tuesday. But uh, what what is the timeline really for settling the rest of this? Do you have any idea? I, I cannot imagine antitrust stuff moves too quickly. Yeah, yeah. Antitrust cases do not necessarily move quickly. They uh, they can last years. Um, and I think you're right. The TRO schedule, I had taken a quick look, and I think that's up for uh, an in-person hearing on August 9th, on Tuesday. So those get resolved very quickly. But as for the rest of the complaint, I mean, they've, they filed their complaint. What happens now is that the uh, defendants in the PGA will have a chance to either answer that complaint or file a motion to dismiss. It's either within 21 days if they don't waive service or if they do waive service, it could be up to 60 days. Or sometimes they can they can reach some type of agreement that they get an extension on that. But I think you should probably expect to see a motion to dismiss, I would imagine, within the next few months. Then the plaintiffs will have a chance to respond to that motion to dismiss. That will be within usually 30 days. And then 30 days after that, the PGA will have a chance to reply. So there's a long briefing schedule for the motion to dismiss. Then the court will consider it and will usually um, schedule a hearing. So I would expect if you add all that together, maybe within the next six months or so, a motion to dismiss hearing, six to nine months. Um, it depends on the court's court schedule. Um, and so then the court will decide the motion to dismiss. And what the, mo- the motion to dismiss is, is it's, 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 a, it's a pleading where it says taking a, 
assuming everything is true, all of the allegations are true. So taking them for the word. So just assuming everything that the plaintiffs have said in their complaint is, is true. Have the plaintiffs asserted a cause of action? Have they um, alleged sufficiently the elements of a cause of action based on you know, the Sherman Act? All, they've, you know, they've brought five different counts. So have they alleged a, a cause of action? And the court will determine whether or not they have um, you know, motions to dismiss are, I would say, in antitrust cases, very rarely granted. They're often denied. So then if, if the motion to dismiss is denied, then the parties will proceed to discovery. Discovery involves you know, interrogatories, production of documents, depositions. Um, the court will set a schedule for how long um, discovery will go for. Then there will be mo- motions for summary judgment, likely, which is basically moving uh, saying that there's, as a matter of law, um, one side can't prove their case or can't prove their defenses. And so there's no genuine issue of fact. So basically saying that it wouldn't need to go to trial. If the summary judgment motion is denied, then those will go, then the case will proceed to trial. So these these can have a long timeline. Um, and I suspect within the ne- coming months, you'll there'll be some type of scheduling order by the court that will give you a, a little bit more of a, a layout of, of how things are likely to proceed. Well, Lauren, thank you very much for confirming exactly what I thought and that this is not <laughs> going to be exciting at all. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of red tape and a lot of conversations like this as time goes on. But uh, we may be leaning on you as well in the future to help us through some of the uh, the, uh, the legalese of, of these. So we greatly appreciate your time. And uh, we'll, we'll, I would say hope to speak to you soon, but I hope it uh, hope we get a little more time in between this before, we, uh, before this comes right back up. So thanks for your time. That sounds great. Of course. My pleasure. Next up is an interview with Will Bardwell from the Lying For blog. Uh, Will is a golf writer and a lawyer and helps us kind of have a little conversation about everything that's going on within this and helps me with my total lack of legal knowledge and how it all works. But uh, without any further delay, here's Will. Immediate reaction. You read the 105 pages of the complaint. Uh, what, what, what was your biggest takeaway, immediate reaction? Where's the, what's the big story here? It's a real case. You know, I, I know people have kind of been people have known this is coming for two years now uh, I think there was uh, there was always a question of how compelling it would be once it hit the ground it's compelling I don't know if they're gonna win uh, but it's a real case I don't read a lot of these types of documents but I guess I was a bit surprised in reading it at how I, I don't want to start with this necessarily but how weak a lot of the claims are in it and how politically charged, politically, maybe not the right word, but how, again, as I say it, it's probably really stupid. I'm really nervous to talk to lawyers about this kind of stuff. No, no, the the lawyers are the ones who screw it up, man. Human beings are the one who, uh, who who are able to talk about this stuff like real people. So, but there's a ton of stuff in there that seems really easy to shut down. And from that, it makes, I don't know that that's a question for, for you. Is it, is the goal of this to throw as much stuff at the wall here and see what sticks? Because I definitely see some stuff in here that should stick, and I want to get to that. But I'm kind of just a little surprised by the by the tone of it, considering everything else that they've put out there. I'll throw that at you. Well, definitely that there are things that if you don't include it in the complaint, you're screwed, uh, that you start losing opportunities to include it in the case. And sometimes you can amend your complaint down the road, but uh, your only guarantee of getting certain legal claims in is through your complaint. So yeah, it's not unusual for for somebody to throw a lot of stuff at the wall to use your terminology. Which parts in particular did you not find compelling? 
I find it compelling. I just am. I've found uh, a lot of Phil's claims along in the months and years that have led up to this to be pretty easy to shut down in terms of how the PGA Tour distributes money, um, how you know how a lot of this stuff works. And I just it just read almost like a lot of the quotes that he gave to Alan Shipnuck and the things that he's said in other interviews on how the tour is robbing them of money and, and all the media rights and all this stuff that. Um, you know, I, I was just amazed that they went for the PJ Tour players are not compensated similar to athletes in other sports. Because listen, Big Three basketball just preempted the uh, the third round of the Wyndham as we go <laughs> go to record this. No one's watching this stuff, and if they really want to compare themselves to the NBA and NFL, I just I, I again I'm not a lawyer, but I find that part to be really easy to shut down. You know, one thing in the complaint I did sort of snicker at to myself was uh the suggestion float around in the background that Liv's response to all this has had to be to throw tons and tons of money at these players and that that might not be sustainable you know it, it might cost Liv the opportunity to remain in the game and it's like who are you kidding here you know th- this is not being bankrolled by uh you know the, the AT&T and uh and Wyndham Hotels you know this patchwork of sponsors we know who's paying for this that part was is buried a little bit near the end, if I may say. And that I was very surprised when I got to that part too. And it is a little; they have a little bit of you know crying foul for for how boastful they've been in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of crying foul and blaming the tour for things not being as good as they could be in this. And we can get to some of that. But what when you say it's a real case, uh, what what makes you what 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 about this sticks out the most to say make you say that? Well, I wrote about this in November that uh, the tour strategy just seemed to invite questions about antitrust violations, which is not the same thing as saying that there were obviously antitrust violations, but uh, the questions were serious enough that, uh, I mean, at this point, the Department of Justice is investigating them. Um, You know, that's not a a group that's accustomed to wasting its time. Um, the, The claim in the complaint that if I were the tour I would be the most worried about uh, is the uh, group boycott claim under the Sherman Act. Uh, generally, under the Sherman Act, group boycotts get a lot of scrutiny. Uh, they are subject to a, a type of review that the, the courts call per se, you know, automatically, effectively. This type of behavior is automatically an antitrust violation. And when you're working with another entity, to preclude competitors from entering the market, that's a gigantic antitrust problem. Now, that's not the only problem they've got, but if I were them, that's the one I'd be the most worried about. This is uh, admittedly probably the most flawed logic I could have had over the last several years, but a, a part of what has driven me to think like the tour has to know something here. There has to be something here. Cause I read like every time anti-competitive behavior, antitrust behavior has been explained to me. I'd be like, Oh yeah, the tour is definitely doing that (laughs) for sure. But my reaction to like Monaghan's not an idiot, right? Everyone that is working on this from the PGA tours perspective, I would not consider to be idiots. I would not consider them super willing to personally put themselves out there blindly, ignorantly with what they've done without having some kind of ground to stand on and that's kind of my thinking of like, listen, if it comes down to who is sticking their chest out more and if I'm, if I'm, who do I believe more like Greg Norman or Jay Monahan? like I'm going to lean on Monahan based on what I know. Is that, is there anything to that? What's your reaction when I say something like that? 
Yeah, I have also wondered about their strategy and and not just the fact that they have engaged in what is at least arguably an antitrust violation, even as simple as continuing to encourage their members to speak publicly on this. You know, whenever a company is under investigation or you know, maybe uh, maybe looking at potential litigation. What what is the first thing that general counsel always tells the employees? Shut up about this. Do not say anything about this publicly. Even if you're trying to help, it's just too easy to say something that can be twisted that hurts the case. So don't say anything. And the tour has said since the since the beginning. Yeah, we hope you speak out about this. Speak publicly about this all you want. And uh, and then the day before the, the lawsuit drops, Davis Love has this statement uh, about, well, we don't care what the courts say. And if they say we, we got to let a bit, we're going to we're just going to boycott. Well, Jesus, man, um, that, you just don't say that. I don't you, I don't know. Don't say that. No, which is and then the, the day after that, when the lawsuit drops, Monaghan puts out another letter saying, yeah, well, if you want to keep talking about this, please feel supported in that. Dude, uh, this this was Exhibit A, and why wow, that's a bad idea. So, I don't know where this is coming from. I know they've got super smart people advising them, and I guess there, there's got to be a strategic reasoning there, but it eludes me. Whatever it is, and it is easy to you know read this. It's 105 pages from Live, and when you when you read it all, you know stacked on top of each other, it's of course gonna it's gonna it's gonna you know look and, and sound pretty bad for the tour. But I'm sure if the tour came up with 105 pages as to you know we that will I, will we be able to read something like that soon? What what is what's the what's the sequence of events or what happens next here? And there's a lot more we got to break down within it. But I want to know how this will play out. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So usually the way this works is uh, the plaintiffs file a complaint which is just the document that starts a lawsuit. Uh, and that 21 days later, at least in federal court, which is where this is, uh, the defendants have to file a document called an answer, which just responds to all the allegations in a complaint. And after that, usually civil litigation in federal court is pretty boring for a while uh, until discovery starts and you start getting depositions. They're a lot of fun. This is going to work a little bit differently because three of the players who sued the tour have asked for uh, a temporary restraining order. Now, usually when people hear the phrase restraining order, they think of, you know, they want some sort of protective order that keeps someone from, uh, you know, being within a thousand feet of them or something like that. A temporary restraining order is not like that at all. A temporary restraining order is just a short term order uh, from the judge to tell the defendants to either stop doing something or to keep doing something in order to just preserve the status quo for the court to sort of wrap its arms around this problem and see if there's a, see if there's a there there. Because I mean, you can imagine situations like this where, you know, you, you sue somebody, you want them to stop doing something, but in the meantime, you have suffered some sort of injury that can't be undone through money damages. It's just got to be quick or you're going to miss exactly. the, whatever you're trying to exactly. have action and this, on. Yeah. So that's what they're arguing here. And, you know, on Tuesday, there will be you know, a hearing on this. It'll look a lot like a, a mini trial. 
And at the end of it, the judge will rule, you know, presumably either Tuesday or Wednesday. And when that happens, we'll have a pretty good indication of, at least early on, how she views this case. What do you think? Are these three guys, is, is Matt Jones, Taylor Gooch, and Hudson Swafford are trying to get into the, the FedEx Cup playoffs? Total, obviously, armchair legal expert here. It sounds like, if I were to guess, I would say they get in based on Poulter and how the, the British finding was for the Scottish Open. If it's anything along the same lines legally, I would guess that they're going to get into the FedEx Cup playoffs. Is that fair estimation? Yeah. The uh, So anytime a judge is asked to grant a temporary restraining order, uh, there are a few questions that she has to answer before doing that. One of which is, are the people asking for a TRO likely to succeed in the lawsuit? You, you can understand how if Taylor Gooch and, and these other guys wind up winning a, a TRO, they got to walk away from that feeling pretty good about their chances in the whole lawsuit. I, I definitely would want to hear what the tour has to say before handicapping uh, which side is likelier to win. But, you know, if you're sort of, if you're balancing the equities here, which is what courts call when you just kind of compare and like, okay, which side has more to lose here if they, if they lose this TRO fight? It would certainly seem like the players have more to lose than uh, the tour has. So, you know, I, I, just based on that, I would say that the, um, the players have a little bit of a leg up, uh, you know, and of course that depends on what the, the tour has to say about the legal merits of the case. But I would at least say that the players have a, a fighting chance. Hmm. Yeah. To me, it just, it just seems like, you know, it, it would be safer for the courts to allow them to play in this and say, we'll figure out the rest of this later. But like, well, in the meantime, we're going to let you play. That seems like a small stakes decision on the courts side. It would, the ramifications would be worse if they denied them that opportunity would be my guess that that's, that's not to say that I think that it's uh, again, I don't know enough to whether or not to say that it just feels like a different decision than the, than the case itself, this immediate, can you play the FedEx cup playoffs? And that's yeah. right. Well, your intuition is right. I mean, one of the reasons that courts want to, uh, to grant temporary restraining orders is to preserve their authority to grant meaningful relief, you know, to, issue a decision at the end of the case that matters. And it, it would be easier to imagine that if you get to the end of the case and these three have not been able to play in the FedEx playoffs, that they have, they've suffered an injury that can't be undone by a, by a court order. Um, so th that's why I say if you sort of balance the equities of you know, the players not being able to play versus the PGA Tour not being able to keep them out of the playoffs. I, I think the players have got the, the better equitable argument there. So I want to back up through all this and kind of uh, at least try to view this through the lens that uh, that uh, I viewed it through or ask you about it through the lens I've tried to, to view it through. And it's does the does the PGA Tour need to let anyone play on the PGA Tour, right? And like to me, this whole thing, hinges on whether the tour's policy of, hey, collectively, we are going to group all of your guys' marketing rights and sell that to sponsors, but you have to be committed to us. You have to be playing this tour. If you want us to group this together and get you as much money as possible, you got to be committed to us. We can't sell your rights for millions if we don't have control of where you're going to play. You have to cede this control to us and allow us to do that. And if we give you the rights to play everywhere, the rights lose value and we can't give you that money. 
the question I believe is, can the tour do that legally? Is that this policy that they have, is that that's been in place for a long, 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 long time? Has it been illegal this whole time and it's only now coming to light? It's funny you ask that because I did not realize until the last few days that this is not the first time that this policy has come under scrutiny. In 1995, the staff at the Federal Trade Commission recommended that PGA Tour be investigated for antitrust violations for, uh, for this very policy. And ultimately, the FTC decided not to follow its staff advice and, and not to investigate, but it wasn't because the FTC believed that, uh, that this was all above board. It was because the PGA Tour lobbied members of Congress to lean on the FTC, and it was successful. So the, the tour dodged that bullet, but not because the FTC was convinced that this was okay. Uh, so it, it's, you know, has it been illegal all along? I, arguably, yes. I, the analogy I keep going back to is like a college fraternity, which has a lot of characteristics in common with the PGA Tour, and not just that they're, you know, people who've been there too long and need to leave. But, well, I mean, think about it. A, a College fraternity is a membership organization. It's member-run, member-led. Uh, a college fraternity has rules that its members enact. Membership in the fraternity is conditioned on following those rules. You know, some of those rules are about meetings you've got to attend, uh, dues you've got to pay, what you can't do in public, uh, what you got to wear to a football game. And a lot of those are fine. But they're not okay when they start to conflict with the law. You know, there are laws now in most, if not all states, prohibiting hazing. And fraternities used to have policies, written or unwritten, that if you're a pledge, you've got to go through hazing. Well, just because you're a membership organization and you're member-led, that doesn't excuse you from violating the law. You know, being, being in a member-run organization isn't an excuse to get around uh, legal rights of your your members. And so that is where I personally, as a golf fan, draw the line. And they're like, I'm straight up not rooting for the law here. Like I'm rooting for the most entertaining golf product, right? And that like, I know like I get so many lawyers that you just have very strong issues with what I'm saying when I'm like, you're not following what I'm saying here. It's basically like if this gets less, if golf gets less boring and let's ignore my job that is involved with like watching golf and talking about it, like, Let's ignore that for a second. I'm going to watch less golf. Like, if it's less boring, I'm going to watch less golf. And I think a fractured golf world where guys go everywhere that they want, I think that's a lot less interesting. So setting aside all that, like, legal aspect of it for a second, I just want to pause on that to say, like, these 11 players, like, straight up are assholes because it is a an agreement that these players have come to. to say, and maybe it's like, an illegal cartel, if you want to call it that, okay? I, I, Sure, that may be the case, but they've all come to this agreement of like, hey, if we want to play for this tour, like here's we have to abide by the rules of this tour, and we want to do that. And a, a bunch of them have left and are in with, under, with the understanding that they were not going to be allowed to double dip and are still now going to double dip, and it very may very well lead to the whole thing crumbling where a bunch of dudes that probably had much better grounds to go leave and make more money elsewhere have tried to stay behind to protect the collective effort of these tour pros. 
And it's just like, again, they have every right to go do this. You have every right to go pursue it, every right to take the live money, every right to try to sue the tour to play both. But fuck, it is such a middle finger to the peers that have held up their end of the deal, have committed themselves to the tour and to the collective effort to create a competitive golf product. And that is where, like, that is my stance on it. I that listen, is that going to hold up in court? Well, Guessing I think no. you're. Well, I, I don't know. It's um, it, it's not a legal point, but you're you're coming around on what I think may be the biggest problem that these eleven plaintiffs have, which is like if you don't know about the ins and outs of antitrust law you know imagine you're just a prospective juror and you get called into the courthouse and they they start explaining this case to you and you don't know anything about it you don't have any you know affection for either of these golf tours from thirty thousand feet this case is 11 multi-millionaire saudi-backed professional golfers suing an american nonprofit. That is a bad visual. Now, I'm, I'm with you 100% that these guys on the live side suck. I think it's terrible for golf. I think the suggestion that this is about creating a more entertaining product is laughable. It's completely about sports washing and nothing else. But even hypocrites are entitled to the protections of the law. And that, that may be where the rubber meets the road. And that for me, that's where it's, oh, take it away. I'm like, like, take it away. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a part of the let's go Brandon tour. Like, I'm sorry. I just don't. You know, that's one of the the weird things to me about this case is that if you look at this and you're sort of, you know, a cynical uh, court observer and you think everything is politically motivated, I, I don't know where the politics in this case lie, because if you're, you know, if you're a person who considers yourself a liberal, you generally are in favor of, uh, expanded interpretations of antitrust law. You know, you generally like to see antitrust law interpreted pretty broadly. If you're a conservative person, generally you like to see narrow interpretations of antitrust law that are more permissive of uh, corporate behavior. Under that rubric, you might expect liberals to uh, favor the live side of this and conservatives to, to side with the tour. But you've also got this thing lurking in the background that, you know, live for whatever reason has become kind of a, uh, an attractive landing spot for a lot of the red cap MAGA crowd. And, uh, you know, liberals are, um, are pretty salty on Saudi Arabia these days, justifiably for, um, you know, long history of human rights violations. And so if, you know, there's no clean cut political divide here, it's just, it's a very weird case. It's just chaos. It's agents. I, I, I get the sense that most of the people rooting for live are agents of, are rooting for chaos or just want to watch the world burn a little bit. And maybe are look, and I, we have been agents of chaos when it comes to PGA tour golf, PGA tour golf has needed a shakeup. We've been screaming that from the rooftops for as long as we've been doing this podcast, uh, I, I find myself somewhat rooting for them here because I just don't think this is the chaos. People, a lot of people struggle with that concept. What you wanted it to change, and it's changing. Here we go. It's like, well, it's not like every change I think that they could have made is the right one and sustainable and great for the long term sustainability and health of the game and all that. And that's where 
I again, I, I just I don't even know if I'm thinking in terms of law or if I'm taking and thinking in terms of what I'm rooting for and and how this is gonna play out. But I want to know: Does the tour's 501c6 status help or hinder it in any way through all of this? Is it that does the antitrust element of that help at all because they are a nonprofit? Does it hurt at all? I'm just curious as to if they can hide behind that in any way. It's definitely going to help from an optics standpoint, even if it isn't relevant in the litigation. You know, if you're if you're trying to do public facing messaging on this uh, on this case and you can say, look, we're we're just a, a nonprofit organization in Florida that tries to raise money for charities across the country. We're up against this uh, gigantic legal team backed by uh boo koodles of Saudi money, um, you know, that, that, that's a pretty attractive narrative to play if, if you're the tour. I'm not sure it actually matters in a court of law. I do wonder how safe the, the tour's 50C uh, status is here. Uh, now, these are, as far as I know, separate questions. Uh, the, you know, the live players don't have standing to bring that into this case, but you know, for a, a nonprofit that claims its purpose is to uh, afford professional golfers play and opportunities, it certainly seems inconsistent with that to be uh, denying players uh, play and opportunities. You know, the Andy Ogletree story to me is maybe the most compelling part of the complaint. That's, that's a, a, a tough one. Good that's example a of that. Tough one for the tour. Uh, reading that one, it was kind of uh, that. That one was you know he they basically are denying him releases despite not being qualified for PGA Tour events. And that to me feels different. And there's a couple things within this that I think are, you know, that I had marked down here as not good that the tour has been doing necessarily and, and, and not, you know, I mean, in terms of like very much more clear violations or good evidence against them rather than just banning players from playing in the events. Again, I don't know if that's legal or not, but I can understand why they would do that. I think the tour pressuring sponsors to drop players, that seems not good. And then Ogletree one, that one feels like it could cause some major issues for him. And I don't know if they should have handled that one differently, but if he could not get in Corn Ferry events and you denied him releases, that just seems like it might open a door for them to wiggle through to get the rest of the guys in through. Do you see it that way as well? Yes. The other part of the complaint that I found most compelling was the explanation that by banning top players, you know, you're maybe not Phil, uh, who's mostly an irrelevant player now, but uh, you know, top 50 guys like Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, um, Bryson DeChambeau. By banning those guys, you're necessarily weakening the strength of your own fields if you're the tour. You're necessarily not strengthening your competitive position here. What possible justification could there be for that other than that you believe even though you're injuring yourself, you're injuring live more? Can I push back on that one? Because I actually Please. see that one differently. And I'd like to hear the explanation. If you look at it in a vacuum, I would say yes. Like in how they presented it in the complaint, yes. It looks very silly that you would just say, I don't want Dustin Johnson in my tournament. I'd rather hurt us both than, than you know, something have this help you. But I just don't think that's quite the reality because if you the alternative here is that you allow players to come and go as they choose. And I think that greatly hurts your overall field strength throughout the year because guys are going to play 
a lot less tour events and way more live events if they can come and go as they choose. And this, this is my thought. I have no inside info on any of this, but I would say, look, if Rory had the rights to to go, come and go as he chooses, I and it fits in his schedule, I don't see what would really stop him from going to go play a few live events. And therefore, that's probably going to mean less PGA Tour events that he would play. I, I just think that there are a group of guys that are willing to stick to this thing of like, look, we've pulled our rights. We've done this. We've agreed to this. I want to play here. Let's do this together. And that if you could come and go as you choose, I think that hurts down the line fields in a lot more events and guys are, and then again, you're dealing with such an irrational actor that like, yeah, now live is scheduling stuff opposite, like horrible events. But what happens when live really makes their power play? You think they're going to like be like, no, we can't do it. It's opposite the players. We can't do it that week. How about this week? We'll put up a $50 million tournament opposite the players. That seems way more likely than I just don't think the tour seeding ground in any way uh, I think that would have really been damaging and look they may have been said all right we're gonna we're gonna risk it all on this antitrust thing and if we fail that we were gonna die anyways um I don't know if any of that makes sense but to me it just seems like it they've protected the guys that have wanted to stay with this policy of banning people and yes on a one-off basis it would make sense to want to add DJ to your fields but if you let guys come and go as they choose I think they're going to not like how many guys are, are going to be willing to skip PGA tour events. I, I think that's a really good counter argument. The number one reaction I had listening to that was that the tour has made exceptions before that the tour has granted these waivers pretty permissively throughout its history. Other tours, a limited amount and usually with conditions in it. Yes, totally. Um, but why is live being and, and i'm not trying to pin you on this no this no, no. I, let's I'm have the conversation <laughs> yeah but so the question i'm grappling with is what is the straight-faced explanation what is the non-anti-competitive <laughs> explanation for you know allowing guys to go play the scottish open uh you know five years ago when it wasn't co-sanctioned but now you know, you, you can't go play the the event at Trump Badminster. You know, what what is the explanation for that? And that is where it's like, yeah, anti it sounds anti-competitive as shit to me because like even the reason they give for not allowing guys to go play in London was like, well, this tour is also setting up North American events and that's against our policy, right? Which like if you like it doesn't take a genius to read the non-competitive nature, read the non-competitive nature into that, right? And uh so yeah, like legally, is that the right move? I I can't say. I've never thought of it from that perspective until the last few months, of course, because it just has not been the way I've viewed the game of golf. But it um, it seems like the again, it just seems really dumb to me for them to have put that as the reason as to why the the releases have been you know uh, denied if they didn't think they could stand on that. What you said there. Um about their sort of all or nothing strategy to me is very, is completely plausible that they may have said, look, that we are up against too powerful a force here, too well healed a tour for us to do anything, but, but use every tool at our disposal. And if we wind up getting in trouble for that, uh, so be it, but it's our only chance. Maybe that's the strategy. I don't know. That's pure speculation, but but it's, it's certainly plausible. 
What happens? You mentioned depositions, discovery. When does that start? What gets uncovered there? Uh, what uh, th- that that stuff kind of scares me. <laughs> just in, just in general, I'm not saying even with any rooting interest here. Just saying like. Gosh, the idea of lawyers combing through every word that is communication between Fred Ridley and Jay Monahan and all that. Is that what Discovery's like? Tell us what, what yes. that's like. So Discovery usually starts a, a few months after the lawsuit starts because there, you know, there's some very boring hoops to jump through before that about uh, agreeing on a scheduling order for Discovery, um, exchanging some, uh, some preliminary documents. Uh, But then discovery starts. It usually starts with written discovery requests, uh, which consists of questions called interrogatories, where you ask the other side, uh, you know, what, uh, who who are all the people who uh, you know of, who have uh, knowledge of conversations that Fred Ridley had with Jay Monahan about this? You know, that's just an example. Uh, There are requests for admission. you might say, please admit that Fred Ridley had a conversation with Jay Monahan about this on such and such date. And then there are requests for production of documents, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you hand over all the documents you have related to uh, such and such conversation about, you know, about this between Fred Ridley and Jay Monahan. Now, after that come the depositions. If they get to that point in this case, those are going to be insane. Yes, because everybody on 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 both sides of this case, I can see them all being terrible deponents. Uh, Mickelson is going to be awful. Greg Norman is going to be awful. All these guys think they're the smartest people in the room. Monahan, I don't know. They're going to be a lot of people shooting themselves in the foot in depositions, and the transcripts are going to be hysterical. But if I may say, if you are an executive of a company or a major, major, major sports league like this, you are you are at least acting or hopefully acting from the day from day one in that role with the understanding that I might be called into court for anything I do at any time, right? Any email I send every time. Like you ha- you know that right going into it, so that's not to say that they've you know that they have not made any mistakes that they're going to regret. But Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman have not carried themselves in that way throughout their entire lives, right? Of like, oh, anything I say or do might be used against me in court. I could see that the tour being more protected in that regard than some of the live guys. Is that fair? With yeah, with the exception that uh, that Phil has a documented history of, uh, of choosing not to uh, speak and incriminate himself in court. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'll see the tour, you, you know, one thing they've got is um, they have an exceptional legal team. So do the plaintiffs, but the tour is not going to be hurting for the very best legal advice it can get. So if they'll, um, my advice to them would be listen to your lawyers, do everything they say. Sean Zach had a, a great article on, on golf.com kind of highlighting 11 surprises, I guess. And I kind of wanted to go through a few of those with you in it, but uh, just worth noting, not all the live players were involved. No DJ, no Brooks, Sergio Westwood and Stenson. Um, I believe those are the guys that gave up their, um, their membership to the tour. Thus cannot go back and sue them. Right. But figure that was worth noting. Mickelson was suspended on March 22nd for attempting to recruit players to live. 
it sounds like that's a part of their case in terms of that he should have never been suspended or I, that we just did not have that information. I don't believe until this, this came to light. Uh, Bryson had already signed with Liv by the time he made his coerced into uh, or forced to publicly declare loyalty to the tour um, on February 20th or whenever that was. He had already signed with him. They, they specially, especially note that in there that he had already signed, which I would like to get this in on the record at this moment. It's very interesting that that comes to light because we were planning to go forward with information on February 24th of this year that both Phil and Bryson had signed with Liv um, prior. And this was already after the Mickelson stuff came out and and Bryson had released his statement saying, "My I'm with the PGA Tour. We had info that they had both already signed. Uh, being the hardcore journalists that we were, reached out to comment on from both Phil and Bryson's team. And uh, Bryson's team categorically denied our information uh, at that time, which uh, we respected and did not go forward sharing that information as uh, I was wont to believe that and uh, figured we'll let this play out over time and see how it works out. Sure enough, uh, it was accurate. Never heard back from, uh, from Phil's team uh, after reaching out for comment as well. But uh, just found that very interesting that it was official that he had signed. I'm beginning to get the impression that Bryson is not always what he claims to be. Just, just throwing that out there. I was expecting a no comment. I really was. And the category, you know, I, I, you can't really run through and reporting that. And I, we're not journalists and the, this shit scares me, you know, to begin with. Um, but if they're going to deny it, like I'm not going to re- report that information because I, I'm, I'm usually one to believe people, but that, uh, Turned out to maybe not be the most accurate. Just one I found that interesting. You mentioned Davis Love, his statements. What? Okay, so that's included in this, and he's called a tour representative here. Does he have any executive power in any way, or is that just a convenient thing for them to throw in to say, hey, this guy that played on the PGA Tour for a long time and lifetime member is saying they're going to, oh, yeah, we don't care about the courts and we're going to boycott majors or whatnot. Does that actually have any real legal standing or is that just that kind of help contribute to the story? I kind of wondered about that too. Um, I, the second time I read it, I started to think, well, maybe they're using the term representative loosely here. Uh, you know, maybe they're just, they mean someone who is speaking with knowledge of, uh, of the tour's thought processes here. It's certainly relevant. Um, you know, if he has insight into the tour strategy here, that it's certainly relevant to uh, what they're planning. But um, no, I, I, you know, in terms of whether he's got you know an official representative or he's just speaking in his capacity as a member, I'm I'm not sure it makes a, a hill of beans difference. But I would sure ask him to not do that yeah. anymore. Please, yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> the fact that this all dropped and that a couple of hours later. He tweeted that he was doing an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. I just like, I almost fell out of my chair. Like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> no, don't, don't ask me anything. <laughs> Go to the house, take a nap. We had heard some rumblings that Fred Ridley had said, you know, live players wouldn't be allowed on the grounds and uh, a similar, you know, for, you know, at Augusta and a similar statements included in the complaint as well. It also seems like they're leaning pretty hard on the PGA Tour, DP World Tour alliance being unlawful. They use that word a lot. Any, any insight into that? Does it, uh, is that kind of a product of all the things we've already been talking about to this point? Yeah, the, that's 
the part of this that would worry the most if I were the tour, uh, because group boycotts are per se unlawful under the Sherman Act, meaning group boycotts are always a violation of the Sherman Act. That doesn't mean necessarily this was a group boycott, but it certainly looks like one. So I would be really worried about that. And then Sean also noted that the tour's previous decade of performance will be analyzed. And I'm, I'm curious on this one because they talk about like, yeah, the purse has only gone up by two and a half percent. NFL has gone up by this, blah, blah, blah. And they also contribute, you know, the purses haven't gone up enough, but they also say like, hey, there's nobody like watching this thing. Like the tour is not putting out a good product. And I, I just, the, the, there seems to be some contradictory stuff in here of like, why aren't purses going up? Yet also the tour is not performing that and not, not been creative enough. Like it, it just, I don't know how to explain that. I'm not explaining that very well, but it, it seems like, they're, it's not like they're saying, hey, all this, all these people are watching it. Why isn't the money flowing in? They're basically just saying, like, oh, we know like no one's really watching this, but why aren't we getting more money? One of the, the arguments floating around back in the 90s uh, about you know, folks who said that, uh, that the PGA Tour wasn't being anti-competitive, uh, one of the arguments was that, well, the tour is increasing its revenue. You know, it's it's bringing in a lot more money, and therefore this can't be anti-competitive. Of course, it's pro-competitive, and I, I wonder whether these allegations are aimed at nipping that argument in the bud uh, to say, like, look, the difference between now and the '90s is that uh, your viewership is declining, your fan base is declining, and you know you're not raking it in the way, or at least at the rate you were 30 years ago. Yeah, I guess I just get you know confused as to why they want to come back and play here when they have a better option now and if they're not you know innovative enough i don't know that part just and then they say yeah number one player on the uh, tour money list in 2019 was brooks kepka 9.68 million his winnings were equivalent to the 129th highest paid nfl player and the 121st highest paid nba player and the 128th highest uh, paid mlb player and i'm just wondering why that what that is is saying like is basically are they trying to say like the tour is stifling the earning possibilities of these players and like live is proving that look how much we're able to pay them yeah i think the argument there is that live is you know the rates that live is paying are demonstrative that these the market rate for these guys is actually much higher than what the tour has been paying and that the reason the tour has been able to underpay them yeah. is that it has been the only game in town. Gotcha. Uh, and so I, I think that's where they're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, it's just, it's just hard. Actually, to, yeah. It's hard to look at the 125th player making a million bucks uh, more than that out there and just be like, yeah, they're just not, not bringing it <laughs> in. I'm getting a 0.6 rating. And uh, I don't know that that part is just, is, is strange to me. Part that, feels very not good and I don't think I'd heard this was that the tour had threatened to withhold vested retirement funds if guys were going to join live I had correct me if I'm wrong I hadn't heard that anywhere that's not been publicly stated and that seems like guys what are we doing here I can get future playing opportunities yes but vested interest in in the retirement fund seems like a immediate no-no you cannot possibly do that yeah I, I had heard that through the grapevine uh, but this was the first time I'd heard it uh, said publicly. Th yeah, that seems like a gigantic problem. Um, 
and I don't know enough about the ins and outs um, of what sort of legal exposure they're doing there. There's a, there's a federal statute called ERISA that it's E-R-I-S-A that uh, controls pension funds. Uh, and it's, it's a massive, you know, huge mess that I, I hope I never have to do anything with. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you start screwing with people's retirements. Again, what, what justification could there be for that other than that you are trying to keep them from going to live? Yeah. And last thing I really have here in, the, in my notes, and I, I, I've taken up a lot of your time, but it, and uh, this is not why I got into covering golf. But the last thing I really had, and this, I, I don't know if I'm going to ask this in the right way, but help me understand this. So the tours, let's just say the tours not is uncompetitive, blah, blah, blah. But as far as I can tell, the tour provides releases for players to play on other sanctioned tours quite regularly. So I'm wondering, does live lose any claim? Yeah, the tours behavior towards live has been uncompetitive. Let's just say that for the sake of this argument. Does Liv lose anything to say like, hey, the tour is not the only game in town. There are other tours around the world and they are allowed, you know, possibility to to participate in all of this. And the tour has not acted like a monopoly when it comes to other sanctioned tours. Does that help the tour's case at all against Liv specifically? Does that make sense? I'm sure that the tour will argue that Liv's position is that the tour has been comfortable granting releases to play on other tours because the prior to Liv, uh, the other tours out there are, haven't been real competitive threats to the PGA fiddle. Tour. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, what, it, what does it matter if Jason Day goes and plays in Australia next week? You know, that's that's fine. On the other hand, if Dustin Johnson wants to go play on Liv next week, well, that that is a problem. And uh, so I think Liv would say that you're treating us differently because we're different than those other tours in that we are a real competitor to you. Yeah. I, and that, so that's where I, I'm impressed, I guess, uh, with how Liv has managed to do this in terms of, I, I'm very much of the opinion, and I don't even know if it is opinion, it might just be fact, that they want to sink the PGA Tour, right? And they... It, it they've eased their way into this, if you will, with this international series that they're calling it and the league not starting until next year and going opposite all these other events and all that. And that's where I guess this isn't even a, a legal question where I have, I tend to take the stance that I do is like, if you give ground, give them any kind of ground, they're going to plan to run over you. They're going to try to run over you regardless. And any ground you see is just a ground you're not going to be able to make up in any way. So I don't know. I've spun myself into a web with all this stuff, and I'm all over the place with this, but I'm just trying to make sense of it. Well, the tour has a lot more to lose here than Liv does. You know, if Liv loses this lawsuit, that's not going to be great for how they'd like to do business going forward. But as long as you're willing to throw nine figures at players, uh, you're going to be able to peel one off every now and then. If the tour loses this lawsuit, it's the end of the PGA Tour as we know. Yes, it's going to be a developmental tour, effectively, uh, and so the, you know, the the stakes for the tour could not be higher. Uh, Live could sort of deliver the death blow here, but if they lose, uh, they they probably have a path forward. Any idea on the timeline for if we say the tour, it's going to be the death blow to the PGA Tour? What's the soonest that could happen? You know, discovery is going to take a long time in a case like this because th these sorts of cases are really fact intensive. So, you know, 
the, the judge will probably set a trial date sometime soon. It, you should expect that'll be pushed back at least a couple of times. Uh, assuming it goes through trial, uh, obviously there will be an appeal. And after that, I, I would, I think this would probably be an attractive case for the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if we're still talking about this case four or five years from now. But I also would be a little surprised if they don't come up with a way to settle this case uh, before it gets to that point. Uh, because, again, the tour, the tour cannot afford to lose this. And if there's some level of coexistence that you can imagine living with, if you're the tour, then I think you, you want to land there because handing it over to a judge and jury uh, it could be the end of life as you know it. Yeah. See, even, I think even any concession is the end of life as you know it. Uh, you know, I just think it, you might be right. Anything that allows coming and going, I think, uh, then I wonder how many sponsors they lose. Oh my God. If I'm blah, blah, blah. Like, why the hell am I going to, you know, if I, like, let's take, I'm trying to think of a non premium event, but non joke event. Let's just call it, if I'm AT&T, like, why the hell am I sticking? Like, if I'm not one of these bumped up major, huge purses, purse events, like JT and those guys aren't going to come play there, right? If they're going to be allowed to go back and forth between Live and and the PGA Tour, they're going to play the Genesis, and then they're going to go play Jetta, and then they're going to and so it. Uh, that's just why, yeah. Maybe that is why the tours pushed all their chips in, and maybe it's not nearly as strong of a case as I would like to think it is. But um, I don't know. Again, I I I can't like muster up that much enthusiasm to root for the PGA Tour that. <laughs> Isn't that interesting to start with? I think it's just, uh, it's kind of grasping at the little bit of straws that we have, but. Yeah, it, it certainly, if you, uh, if you like pro golf and you like federal litigation, uh, you're in the Venn diagram <laughs> right now, but, um, but in terms of like what it means for the future of professional golf, there are not a lot of good options here. Nope. And uh, the the, fr the extra frustrating part is it's brought a lot of people in that do like this Venn diagram and they get super passionate about it and think that that is, uh, you know, what what some people watch golf for. And it's just not the case. But no, Will, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate you helping uh, helping talk some sense into me on a lot of these things. And uh, and, and the, the back and forth was greatly enjoyable. I'm Hopefully uh, the, the listeners are, are better off and understand a little bit better thanks to your insights and not my rambling. But uh, appreciate your time, bud. My pleasure, man. Anytime. All right. So that was great. I think, uh, I don't know, it's always both refreshing and terrifying to hear lawyers put things into layman's terms. <laughs> and boring. Like, this is not what we want to do with our golf fandom. <laughs> no, but also it's, you know, it's kind of like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, like the stuff that we were saying that, like, like this is an antitrust case. And, you know, the fact that, you know, people within the golf space are like, you guys don't know shit about antitrust. Like, you know what? I don't, but I, I've talked to some people who do, uh, you know, over the last 18 months, 24 months, and they assured us that this was a real issue. And certainly it is. And this is before we've even gotten to the world golf ranking, because I'm sure there's going to be lawsuits flying around at them, right? I'm sure there's going to be lawsuits flying around at, at, at other governing bodies, you know, Oh, by the way, the USGA probably going to roll back the ball. We'll see. Like there's going to be so many fucking lawsuits flying around in golf. It's crazy. A downside of, of, of talking with Will was making me realize that I'm just like, I'm grasping at something that's probably illegal that I don't even love that much, but like, that's kind of what I've, I want to be rooting for. And like that sucks. Like it, 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 I'm rooting for like lawsuits are not fun to follow. This is going to take forever to play out. That's not fun. 
Uh, it certainly doesn't appear like the side that I, I find myself rooting for is in the right with a lot of the stuff in it. And, and the downs, the guys that are probably going to win are the bad guys in this regard and how I view it. And it's all just very, very, very depressing. Yeah, that was that was the big takeaway I had too. It was like, hey, like kind of the light going off in your head of like, oh shit, like the tour is you know kind of on the anti-competitive side of this, which we've tour, known. Like, but like, I, I, it's hearing it like spelled out is like, oh shit, like like our suspicions were right, you know? Yes, and I think it's um, it's not that that was a shock. It was just like, it becoming a lot more real in terms of, again, just like how I enjoy sports, right? Like, again, I don't really care about the law. I just want, I would like the law to give me the most entertaining golf product. And in this regard, I think the law is going to help take away the most entertaining golf product, but. Well, and it was just, it's stark when you think about it from the perspective of, you know, because like, I'm kind of resigned to the fact of if the tour loses, yeah. like the tour is going to lose either way here. Right. If the tour, let's say the tour wins some of these lawsuits or, or wins some of the, you know, like, like hearing the Supreme Court, you know, thrown in there, I'm like, whoa, like this could go over the Supreme Court and the four or five year timeline that Will threw out. I'm like, holy shit, man. Like, like we are so early in this thing. Um, but, uh, but just like the tour has everything to lose here and live has everything to gain. And I feel like there's, you know, even if live doesn't get the, the, the verdicts or the judgments that they want here, I feel like they're still, it's still buying them time, yeah. right? It's, it's buying them time. It's buying them all these, you know, all these temporary restraining orders that are probably going to allow these guys to play in the meantime. You know, it's just making all of the tour stuff seem, you know, more and more toothless and more and more ticky tack to where it's like, like the live guys can, can kind of, it's just buying them time to set up their own ecosystem and keep chipping away here and there, which, which sucks. Now I will say, I think the discovery part of this is going to be sick because like that was, I was so hyped when VJ was suing the tour <laughs> because I like, you know, I, I think that was the deer antler spray thing. Yep. And, uh, you know, VJ was suing, like, he, he was suing them. And I think there was, you know, it was still some residual bad, you know, bad taste from Fincham and all that. And the tour, like they always did for everything. They, they settled. Right. And like, you know, the tour was, terrified of opening up any sort of books or any sort of transparency as far as punishments as far as discipline all that stuff now i can't imagine like how you know how much of a risk discovery is for them which again being on like the tour side weirdly it's also like talking about it in that sense and saying oh my gosh like the tour's bad right like you know it's like oh like 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 our side is the is the good side here and we don't want them to have to open up their books for discovery because because there's probably a shitload of skeletons in there like that doesn't make me feel great either but it's also and where i was trying to make this point with will as well is again the the, the tour over the course of this and i'm putting that in quotes the tour has taken on this personality that somehow doesn't represent pga tour players right it is seen as like the execs the bad guys the guys that are like allegedly hoarding tons of money and not creating the, the playing opportunities and all these this stuff when in reality, it is the group of players, the collective efforts of the groups of players that have, look, if it's illegal to be this anti-competitive with this policy, like they were all doing it together, right? And the only way it was going to come tumbling down was if they started backstabbing each other. And that's the reality. It was, the it was, it was for their benefit. Yes. Yes. Right? Like it's for greatly. the benefit of the group. I think that's the biggest distinction here, right? And 
you know, I think I think my issue with the tour has always been like I I think, you know, I've always made Fincham out to be you know Fincham and Ron Price and those guys kind of the guys in the back room of the tour out to be like kind of the boogeyman and that's just been fun for me and fun you know kind of how I how I get my jollies but like I think there's a certain truth to that as well of like there's you know like the tour is not always extremely above board and they're slow as hell to change and and you know I don't think the I, like I think they've capitalized on the players not exactly knowing how the tour operates or how the tour like what their levers of power are um you know like the tour like the the players I think they've added a spot or two more on the board for the players over the last few years but like you know it's still not like it's still mostly non-players right on the on the board which so, like judging from like James Hahn's recent tweets like more players might not be the right answer here cuz they might be Oh, uh, James Hahn might be a fucking moron like <laughs> straight up I mean it's just like he just keeps digging and digging and digging wild and this guy was on the pack exactly right? he's on the board he's a player director He's on the board. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it's crazy. It really is. It, it's just insane what, that it's come to this and how it's all going to play out. Uh, it's just, there was the, you know, like, like I think Will was saying, you know, how, you know, basically telling, you know, telling guys to shut up, like, hey, shut up. Like, don't, you know, like, like, yeah. like whenever you're in litigation, like, shut up. And, and so I get that with like, you know, I think, I think some of my criticism of Monaghan as well could be construed as like, you know, wanted him to talk a lot about this or about that. I was like, no, it's like, honestly, like my criticism of him wasn't like talk more. It's just like, show your face more, like be out there in front taking, you know, even if you can't say anything, just be a shield for your players a little bit more instead of kind of going underground for four to six months while all this stuff percolates, you know, kind of below the surface. A couple of the other things that stuck out, I hadn't heard about the tour threatening to withhold vested retirement fund earnings and i don't know if that's true uh, or not that's listed in the complaint but that i had not heard that at all either and i again i i don't there's no possible way we can take 105 pages of that from live as gospel in any way and yeah. that's it we have not heard from the tourist response and i just i want to reiterate that like if it, if everything went as spelled out in that complaint yes tours in big time trouble i just those guys are uh <laughs> The, the lawyers are arguing it for a reason. There's a there's a reason why that's how that works. Yeah. No. I'm like I, I'm super curious just from a lawyer perspective. Like like I'd love someone to lay it out for me and like, all right, you know the live guys have hired this law firm and they are like the equivalent of the Boston Red Sox, <laughs> and then the tour, you know they've got their in house guys, but they've also got access to, you know if it's King and Spalding or, or, you know, just like, like some high powered law firm and they're equivalent to the Dallas Cowboys over here. And that, you know, this is kind of their culture. Like, I think that would be a super, super interesting kind of uh, perspective on this, I think. But, um, but yeah. And like, just on the tours front too, it's like, what does coexistence look like? Like kind of towards the end when you guys are talking about that, like that's what, that's what I struggle to get my head around is like, there's, you know, I think the best thing that Liv could possibly do, like the most damaging thing that they could do to the tour would be getting rid of Greg Norman. You know, where, yeah. because then I feel like then it's like they're they're stripping away, like Greg Norman's a fucking buffoon. Like he's a he's a moron. He's acting emotionally. He's acting and he's, he's always seemed like a bad faith kind of guy. For sure. It's, it all comes from a place of ego and hubris and arrogance. And like, there's just never going to be any sort of, like it's not for the good of the game as long as Greg Norman is involved. And I don't think it's ever going to be for the good of the game as long as the Saudis are involved as it is. 
But at the very least, like I think getting rid of Greg Norman would be a step in the right direction as far as Liv showing, hey, we are serious about being part of the ecosystem and creating a, a you know a great product that grows the game of golf. And so that's like I think that you know kind of counterintuitively, I think the best thing that they could possibly do would be to say, Greg, you're out of here. Pack your bags. And they'll play it off as this was always the plan. You know, this was, you know, for me to get it started and somebody else take over and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I, I totally agree. I think if they got like a serious leader involved there, that would be, you know, that isn't tweeting, you like them apples at PGA Tour on uh, Instagram or whatever he's, he's doing. It's it's vengeful. It's, it's petty. It's just like, it makes for good content. Surely you jest. It, it makes for great content. But yeah, it, the uh, the the ball is definitely rolling for them, and I, I think he has served his role and uh, is not required going forward. But just as far as like co like kind of going back to coexistence or going back to like what the you know how how much the tour can kind of at some point what's thinking small and what's thinking big, right? Like, can the tour be creative and can they move quickly enough to adapt when the entire system and the entire ecosystem at the tour is set up to kind of to not change to kind of be be a you know be a foundational structure that's that's very very you know inflexible and you know it 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 it, it definitely requires a big portion of the membership to ratify anything and all that. Also, I just wanted to call out Bryson's agent. His name's Brett Falkoff. I'll just leave that there. Yeah, it's tough. It's just all very tough, man. It uh, we're we're trying to do the right thing in that regard, and they publicly denied what we had said that Bryson had reported. And then uh, in private also did not tell the truth as to what Bryson's status was. And uh, let's just say it's extremely, extremely, extremely on brand. A couple of housekeeping items as well. Uh, so I'm not sure if you caught any of the Western AM this weekend. Uh, pretty good final four there. But uh, Austin Greaser won. Great interview afterwards. And then on the amateur front, we've got the U.S. Women's AM at Chambers Bay this week. Uh, I'm excited for that one. I think that's going to be a great, great venue, both overall and especially for the ladies, I think playing the ball on the ground and showing off the new greens there as well. I think it's, you know, that place deserves another shot in my opinion. And then, you know, I'm still buzzing. The, the kazoo classic was a few weeks ago. We had the kazoo open at Celtic Manor this, this past weekend. Callum Shinkwin won. And then uh, I'm not sure if you've been following the slink.io stuff at all with them not making payroll. They're a big DP world tour sponsor. I think they sponsor Rom and a few other guys as well. They they did not make payroll a few weeks I think and uh, their their CEO played in the JP McManus pro am and uh, you know it's it's just it's been a it's been a relative shit show of sorts so things, things seem to uh, be going great on the DP World Tour these days yeah it makes it makes the PGA Tour look like a relative <laughs> paradise they have two, they have two uh, they have two events on the calendar uh, for October that are to to be announced. Not even a country. It's just to be announced uh, <laughs> venue somewhere in Europe. Wild. And then lastly, uh, Luke Donald being named the Ryder Cup uh, captain for Europe. I think that broke uh, after after last week's pod while we were in Sweden. So, you know, I, I got a chance to, to talk to my guy Ludwig about it. Um, and uh, he's excited. You know, I think we're, we're stoked for, for, for our chances at uh, Marco Simone. Uh, I think it, it the move makes sense. He probably should have gotten it in, in the first place, and uh, they they could have avoided some embarrassment. But um, yeah, I, it's 
it's just there's a lot of drama to play out i'm sure on the whole Ryder cup front as well on on all the everything else going on with live and who's going to play in it and whatnot but yeah i think that move makes sense and i hope he now doesn't go leave <laughs> i'll bet to drive his price up to go to live but i think that's it for a, a sneaky long podcast for a week that we are kind of been have been in in transit um but uh good to get back in the saddle and we'll, we'll be we'll be coming hard here through the, the rest of the playoff uh, stretch here and, and putting a, a close to this never-ending season. Sally, all right, last question. Who do you think wins the FedEx Cup playoffs? Uh, Scotty Scheffler. I'll say he. I'll say he holds on. You? Uh, I'm gonna say Victor Hovland. Okay. I'll put my money where my mouth is. Well, you've been. That's been quite successful for you in our uh, weekly DK. Uh, but you didn't you didn't somehow didn't hit this week because we didn't have picks this week <laughs> i know i decided to take the week off because i figured it, it really it just gives me another week that you guys can't catch up to me it's very true it's kind of like playing the four corners offense a little bit but we'll be back this week with 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 some picks we so. will we have wrapped up filming season eight of Taurus sauce we got to give us some time uh to edit that of course but we'll do a podcast about our experience as well in, in the coming weeks or months and uh, and uh, share a lot of details from that trip it's been a great great stretch and uh, glad to be home and yeah glad to be back on the pod and dc we'll see you back here uh next week Sally, it was classy of you not to not to air out my friends at united the other night as well you bought wanna, you bought my silence it. you bought my silence thanks to your the upgrade that you gave me so i will not be mentioning anything about united so official airline of the pga tour <laughs> thank you everyone for tuning in we'll see you back here next week cheers be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.